His analogy is um, that our consciousness is basically a clearing in a forest. Something just comes into that clearing from out of the forest. Yeah. With no idea what it's going to be at any given moment. I mean, it could be just about anything. You know, we are just the observer of that clearing. One of the things that he mentions is what a huge degree of arrogance we have to assume that the conscious mind should gain preeminence because seemingly the forest is much larger. Welcome to Knowing and Believing. This is our third Craigslist conversation. Uh, Tim here contacted me through Craigslist and uh, excited to sit down and talk about whatever you believe. So thanks for coming in this morning. What makes you the type of person who cares enough to even talk about what people believe? Yeah, well, I mean, I, to be honest, um, I mean, I, I went to a college. Uh, I, I was starting to tell you this off camera, but I'll just mention it to you now mm -hmm. because it's, it's relevant to this. Um, called St. John's College, which is a very unusual school. It's, it calls itself a great book school. So when you're a freshman and you're accepted, you're sent a copy of the Iliad Lattimore translation. And for your first class when you're there, you are expected to have read the first quarter of the Iliad on your own, and then you have a discussion the first night. And then in your next class, which is so Mondays and Thursdays are seminar nights. And so, this is the Odyssey, Homer? Yeah, the Iliad, yeah, yeah first. Okay. And then you do the Odyssey immediately after. So you read the Iliad in two weeks, in four classes. You read the Odyssey in a week and a half. You do eight out of the 24 books for the Odyssey. Then mm -hmm. immediately you're into Aeschylus's Oresteia. Then you're in Herodotus. Uh, it's Holy an accelerated cow. reading list that is um, alien, to say the least, to most folks uh, in the U.S. So that's just your seminar. And then you're also doing four years of mathematics. And when you're studying mathematics oh, there, wow. you're reading Euclid. You're actually reading and demonstrating propositions on the board. Everybody takes a turn. Um, and then you start with Euclid, but then you're into Ptolemy, then you're into Descartes, then you're into Newton and wow. Leibniz, then you're into Einstein in your senior year. Wow, that, that is philosophy, a philosophy-dense course then? Yeah, well, it is to a certain extent. Um, you, you know, you, you are reading your Plato and your Aristotle, but you're also reading a lot of drama, you're reading yeah. a lot of literature. Um, you know, I mentioned the mathematics, but, but then you're aren't also... Those, aren't those really dealing with the deeper questions those are those because i've never read them yeah you know absolutely and, yeah so circling back sorry long-winded way no. um but i enjoy conversation i enjoy civil conversation it was part of my education for you know for all of the years there yeah and i also saw in part that um you know when i looked at a couple of your other podcasts i I got the sense that you're really, you know, having this sort of crisis of faith now. And oh, not, absolutely. Not that I have <laughs> very uncomfortable. any sort of simple explanations because very there obviously, obviously just there is, aren't any. Well, a, a lot of people would say there's simple explanations, but I think if if a person's uh, logically honest about it, I don't think there are. But, mm -hmm. you know. So I thought in part that I may have um, some different thoughts or some different... Um, tools or some different, you know, sort of the how-to pieces that might fit into your puzzle in yeah. some way, shape, or yeah. form. You know, I don't Walk know. me through what you got. I'd <laughs> love to hear it. Well, I don't, I certainly don't have any sort of a syllabus prepared or anything like that, but I had a <laughs> Today few... Today on the board. I had a few random thoughts. You know, I thought about, um, you know, just that there's a, there's a distinct difference, um, you know, and maybe a lot of people, this isn't real to them, that there's a good, clear difference between um, what we think and the kind of life of experience, the life of, um, 
you know, the feelings that we have, the, mm-hmm. this feels good versus not that to me, that somewhat is independent of the pure analytical mind, which is looking yeah. for an extraction from that. Sure. So let me pause you right there. Cause it's, it's a lot of what I'm realizing and struggling with currently mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. So there's a degree at which I've separated, I've intellectualized my world view, mm-hmm. if you want to put it that way. Absolutely. I've intellectualized how I viewed everything mm-hmm. to the foundational level, because that was handed to me through uh, you know, a series of religious beliefs, essentially. Absolutely. And they were all you know, taken as uh, reliable and certain. Mm-hmm not even in a relational manner of trust and um, consistency in, in relationship that way, as much as, no, these are empirically provable and true, which I think is, is genuinely self-deceptive and dishonest. I think there's potentially a possibility of relationship to a supernatural something or other out there, maybe. I kind of hope for that, but I also Mm -hmm. realize that uh, my own hoping for that puts me in danger of uh, biases that would mislead me towards something that's not actually true or Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Now, I've had to intellectualize what I believe, which then separates out your, as you're saying, your ration, logic, and reason from your lived experience and your emotional intelligence of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've realized that, for one, I spent 10 years being not that great of a husband, and I came to a point, like my wife came to a breaking point, where I had to realize I was being very selfish, self-centered, self you know, referential and everything. Mm-hmm. And I had to, all right, take these emotions of self-centeredness and making all my decisions on that kind of mindset and, and move it over there. And so I had to take all the emotions that I was using to, you know, guide myself in those and put them over there and rationally, logically uh, approach redefining my life mm-hmm. and making the decisions that are best for everyone involved through logic, reason, ration, social science, knowing how, you know. Mm -hmm. And so there there was this huge separation even before I started to look at what I believe differently, right? And so I moved emotion over there to protect those I love. And then I moved emotion and everything over there and ration and logic over here as well to discern what I believe Mm -hmm. and the the truthiness of it. And so I've gotten to this point where I realize that there is, you know, a value to an emotional intelligence and emotional Mm -hmm. perception, Mm -hmm. but that it also can, you know, just 100% lie to you and, and make you believe things or think things that really aren't true. But at the same time, it's also telling you things that apply to the reality we all experience and guide you and tell you what what is and what should be and and that Mm -hmm. and so the ancient egyptians had this belief i guess you'd call it that logic rationality can have a very malevolent side to it of stripping you of meaning Mm -hmm. and you can be left in a very uh nihilistic place if if you're not careful absolutely Yeah, I'd say that's a, for some, the experience of 
of going to St. John's um, because, you know, amongst the, you know, the 400, um, you know, every year, another hundred pop out and they go, well, what do I do now? I just read all these books. I just right. read all the classics. I shredded every logical system that was ever invented because that's sort of what you do is trying to understand it from, you know, the inside out and the outside in. And is this logically consistent? You know, what were the right. premises of the author? Um, you know, if you're to follow like a Nietzsche's kind of way of thinking, which is that, um, you know, every writing by anybody is a form of confession. So trying to figure out um, hmm. where the kind of kernel of confession might have been in that logical system. It's kind oh, of a strange chase to be on. Yeah. Right. And so at the end of it, I mean, you are left in a bit of a kind of nihilistic conundrum of like, well, which system is left? Graduation is a real sober left? affair where they just kind of walk out yeah. like nothing means anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, they call it, uh, they actually have a, the big, you know, how every college has in the spring a, a big party weekend or something like that towards the end. Yeah. They actually call it reality and it's for the seniors, you know, <laughs> letting them know they're about to re-enter uh, reality, whatever that right, is. Right, yeah. No, that's, yeah. Huh. And so you went through this process. Did you have a system of belief before you went to St. John's that was completely dismantled? And and was that an emotional, traumatic experience? Or did you not really have much that was dismantled? Or Well, I mean, I, I probably, I think, let me... Let me take a step back and do kind of my own quick belief chronology, you know, sure. to kind of inform this. Um, so I was brought up with uh, definitely a strong uh, Christian um, Christian underpinnings, I guess I might say. Yep. Divorced parents from very early, so one side was more Baptist, mm -hmm. and the other side was a little more kind of congregation congregationalist sort of you know, thing somewhere in between. Yeah. So, um, you know, I went to, you know, little Bible schools and things like that. I wouldn't say it was, um, it was oppressive and I, and I, I certainly wasn't taken to church every week, but it was definitely understood that, you know, we all believed in God and, you know, this was a, a strong right, piece of right. everything. I think there was, was a, there was a reality outside of your reality that influenced your reality. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it was somewhere around probably about age 15 or so where um, I went to my both parents, you know, when I was visiting on the weekend or whatever, my mom and uh, with my dad and stepmother when I was there during the week. And I said, I'm at least an agnostic and maybe an atheist. Mm -hmm. And of course, <gasps> but, you know, I was very certain of that um, intuitively for some reason. And I just, mm -hmm. I knew that it, Something, you know, and, and I started to define it as I went to Northeastern and, and was really trying to, I had my own kind of subtle struggle, but I wouldn't say it was necessarily a crisis, but more of a... Now, and, and a critique I would push on to you that a good friend of mine's always pushing on me is mm -hmm. being very, very careful with words because mm -hmm. we can come to a kind of a colloquial way of using them mm -hmm. where they don't really technically mean sure. you know so in saying you're very certain that you're an agnostic agnostic or atheist i i would kind of check you there and say wouldn't you say more so that you had a very strong uh inclination to think that you know this that and the other because coming from my background it's a very you ask people in there, yes, I am certain there is a God. It's not a, like, I can't be certain that my wife loves me. 
yeah. I can only experience our relationship sure. and say I have confidence that she loves me. But mm -hmm. if she did not have the freedom to exit that relationship mm -hmm. or stop loving me, for mm -hmm. one, it would lose its beauty mm -hmm. and it, it would not be the ethereal thing that it is. But anyways. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, that's why I mentioned it. at age 15, I made that pronouncement. Um, you know, I, I think that I... I kind of redefined the terms for myself a little bit, and I would say that I was kind of in an agnostic slash kind of deistic space for a while. So I was I was definitely still somewhat strong strongly atheistic, yep. meaning that I just didn't believe that um, there was a, a being like a human being, which is you know often we anthropomorphize. Oh yeah, you know yeah. the deity or the divine. I've started asking people like, you really think God has a penis? Yeah. I mean, really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. oh, I never thought about. Yeah, no, definitely that sort of thing. Like um, saying like, I just don't think that every individual is getting. I love this visual right here. <laughs> <laughs> there. Tim has his dog here today for those who are just listening and he's got a big, really cool fluffy tail and it's walking through frame and you just see the tail. <laughs> Sorry. He's a good boy. Get him to lie down if he becomes a nuisance here in a moment. Uh, he's fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was just convinced that there wasn't some, you know, big, super smart genius that was like watching me on video camera all the time. It just seemed, seemed strange. It seemed... Yeah, yeah you know, like something I just couldn't fathom. Why would that entity be doing right. that? And an, and an odd idea or thing to consider that this being that is so outside of, you know, whatever, even if it is just a consciousness that would not be embodied in a human form like we would imagine, that it would have such a clear plan that we could understand, mm -hmm. yet it that clear plan could be interpreted in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. If it was so yeah. clear and obvious, why wouldn't we all get it? Right. But we don't. Absolutely. So that that's like what you're saying you were discovering at 15. I'm, I'm like yeah. contemplating at, 40, oh, at 42, which is kind of sad, but... <laughs> Lie down. Uh, yeah, well, it's not to step away from the chronology too much because yeah. I think it informs something, but... There's a great analogy, which is probably one of my favorites, um, you know, that I think is a very interesting way of explaining different points of view. Um, maybe you've heard this one before, but basically the idea is that there are, you know, say people from four different world religions, you know, the Christian, a Muslim, a Hindu, you know, uh, you know, take your pick. This is you know. set up for a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds like it could right. be, right? Um, and they're standing on, say, for instance, the east side of the, a mountain. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them says that is God pointing at the mountain and that is the only God and that is the way to God there. And then everyone else just kind of shakes their head and says, Oh no, 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 no. And then they move to the North side of the mountain. And then a different one of them says, no, that is God. And that is the only way to God there. And the other three of them, you know, so yeah. repeat this cycle They're all pointing over at over the again. same summit and they all have different paths. Yeah. Yeah. So different paths and, merely a different appearance but ultimately you're oh, going to arrive yeah. at the same summit because the north face is going to look different sure. from the east face and the south and west and so on and so right. forth. Right. That's an interesting aspect to it that I've never considered is that, you know, the the final pinpoint location is the same but the appearance of that pinpoint location and everything that descends from it mm -hmm. is completely different. Yeah. But it's still going to the same place and it's a hard thing coming from probably any religious, strong religious background that 
that you'd be able to, within that culture, say there are other valid ways mm -hmm. to the same place because they all preach that, no, there's only this one way. I mean, there's a select few that are like, yeah, no, it's cool. Do, you know, do your own thing on the way to the same place that we're trying to get. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, we actually met with on our trip across the country up for the documentary that I've been working on for far too long uh, or not working on enough. Um, we met with the, a very liberal uh, Islamic I don't know that I'd call him a cleric, but mm -hmm. he was uh, he was very active in the Islamic community mm -hmm. in San Francisco. And, you know, he was outlining like, look, the Quran specifically lays out um, pluralism, basically, that mm -hmm. everyone's on their own path uh, to, you know, working towards the same summit. Mm -hmm. um, in, and I think they loosely define that as the, the good in all working towards God, you know, and then others are kind of like, you know, digging down, I guess, but, mm -hmm. but yeah, and it, even within the extremes of Islam, you have these people that are like, no, there's no pluralism, and we must kill all those who don't, you mm -hmm. know, and Christianity's gone through its same deal, mm -hmm. you know, just go back however many hundreds of years, and yeah. we were doing the same thing, you know, so. Yeah, no, I, 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 de I definitely, I definitely agree. I mean, I, there's a, you know, there. I was a. I wrote my senior essay when I was at St. John's on on Nietzsche. So I have a few quotes that always pop out. And um, he at one point says something about you know I am the railing beside the torrent. He says in one of his texts. Um, and then he speaking also speaking of says, himself, Nietzsche. Yeah, speaking of himself and his writings. I mean, mm -hmm. mainly that he's not away. He's just kind of a you know I've walked a certain path. I'm explaining things in a certain way. Um, it is a way of of, of proceeding. But mm -hmm. he says specifically, um, it is a way. It is not the way. He right. always makes that distinction. Now, when he says, I am the rail next to the torn, is, is he kind of saying the, the kind of the failsafe, the guard against falling into the torrent? Yeah, to an extent that yeah. he can be, you know, leaned upon to, um, you know, to come back to because life, of course, is the torrent, you know, mm -hmm. raging at us all the time. Um, That's interesting because I'm, I find myself at a place where I've gone to the edge of... Um, you know, belief and looked over into complete atheism and found myself to, recoil. you know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely recoil. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of that might just be conditioning because of my background. Mm -hmm. I understand that. But the pragmatic reality of it is that I will not happily exist going beyond there and, and diving into that completely. Mm -hmm. I recently spent a week in London with my wife for, uh, you know, our, I think, 17th anniversary. Mm -hmm. Sorry if I got that wrong, sweetie. Um, and, you know, it was a great time. But, like, for the first two days, I was just really uh, pessimistic, skeptical, and just not a nice person to be around. I mean, I was being pleasant enough, mm -hmm. but under everything, I just saw the pointlessness, the negativity, the skeptical, the um, cynical. Mm-hmm. And towards the end of the second day, I was just like, man, if, if my wife was acting like I am right now, or it even in this, the, the same headspace, it'd just be such a downer to be mm -hmm. around this person, sure. you know? And, and I kind of reflect on that and I'm like, I don't want to exist like this. And mm -hmm. if I continue to exist like this, I am going to be that a very grumpy old man eventually. Mm -hmm. And that just doesn't help anyone. And it, it's kind of, odd and sad and discouraging to think of 
the reality that a, a pessimist is usually closer to reality, mm-hmm. but less happy where an optimist is probably a little bit more separated from reality, but far happier. And mm-hmm. I, I really hate that that is something that rings true to a degree, but I don't know what to do with it other than that. Um, other than try and find this way to embrace both the logical, rational, and the mystical, and what possibly is within within my own head, and be comfortable with that. Yeah, there's. Uh, you've probably heard the name. I don't know if you've ever read any of his books. Um, you know, it's so post St. John's. You know, I've done a lot of different kind of my own spiritual exploration stuff. Um, because the West wasn't particularly satisfying or interesting anymore, so I was, you know, more interested in the East. And they actually have an East grad program that maybe someday I should just go and back you mean and do by like philosophy and religion, Western, yeah. Eastern. Yeah, I, I think that plus kind of the the Western interpretation of it is just a stepping stone, you know, because there's a lot of the quote unquote self help gurus that have got you know maybe a kernel that they read in one of the uh, Upanishads or something. And so, you know, this has great meaning and they write an entire 300 page book about this or whatever. So, you know, one of those folks, um, that I think is, has a couple of interesting points, um, is Eckhart Tolle. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. He's got a lot of good stuff. Yeah. I mean, and the one I think that really resonated with me was the idea that, um, depending on where we're at in here, we, will react to our environment and things around us in certain ways. So the example that I, that really resonated with me is I'm, I'm a frustrated driver sometimes, Mm. you know, that just don't understand what someone's thinking in a lot of cases, but I can also step back from that, you know, when I'm in a calm place and realize, Hey, uh, you know, I know I've been confused you know, someday I didn't know where I was going someday, uh, had bad news, something else, but, doesn't stop me if I'm in a real bad place someday in my mind and I'm frustrated about, oh, you know, I suffered a loss in my mind of something today. And I'm, uh, so I'm screaming like, you know, what the blah, blah, blah are you thinking, you know, yeah. or whatever. And so to me, that's that little kernel was something that I could then take and make more experiential so that if I find myself doing that in a car, I can kind of pull myself back and go, what's wrong that I'm doing this? Yeah, that I'm unable to, you know, understand the potential of maybe what this other person is going through and having some patience in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Because for me, I think the, but the key point with that, I think is the amplitude that's going into it. So it's not just that, because maybe what they're doing is indefensible, but so be it. I mean, uh, let (laughs) he among us cast the first one who hasn't had a mistake. Right, right. But at the same time, why am I putting so much anger and energy like why have i turned the knob why are you alone yeah you know where's that coming from because that's me right that's right. not them whatsoever you know and then the flip side of that you know that tole kind of lays out is if you're kind of in a positive place but you're still feeling a little bit of a lack then you'll often do this like association thing which i always think is interesting where you hear people go oh my god isn't that brilliant isn't that the best and that has that's this unconscious thing of like me recognizing the best in this thing is associating me with it. So my ego is feeling a swelling by saying like, I've recognized this thing is so amazing. But again, there's an amplitude factor there. Mm. What's leading to that? Oh, that's the most brilliant painting ever. Oh my God. And then swooning and going on and on about it. Where's that amplitude coming from? What's that filling in for? What's, 
missing there. Right. I wonder, because I've been around people who, like you're saying, are just losing it on people mm-hmm. on the highway. Absolutely. And, and I'm sitting in the passenger seat going like, what is the big deal? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not, you know, and, and these people just come up with all these excuses of why they're, you know, but like you make a great point. Like, why is that amplitude and then turned up mm-hmm. to that degree in response to that? Yeah. And then I've also been around people who, you know, everything they see it they're just swooning that that, like you're saying that this is the best the greatest Mm -hmm. ever and in some people i've i've seen it and recognized it as not them actually thinking that as much as them trying uh to bend everything in their favor by keeping everybody in a positive mindset to Mm -hmm. make something benefit them which i don't agree with either but then there is also that other thing like you were describing, I think, that is this kind of a reaction to everything being this over swooning. And, and is there, what is the danger in that, you think, or the overdoneness in that? Because, I mean, we can all relate to like, why on earth are you being so negative and letting it rile you up so much? We mm-hmm. obviously don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of an easier thing to a degree. But I but I like your your take on that as saying like, yeah, you can recognize that as bad behavior, but it doesn't have to affect you so much. Mm-hmm. Why is it work on that? I think that's interesting. Right. But this over swooning, I've never really thought about that, but I imagine that there is a degree of that in religions. Uh, and I'm I'm also I'm very worried about how groups uh, interact. Mm-hmm. and what it does to a person's psyche that is in that group. Because if you're in an emotional situation, you're more likely to believe whatever is being sold. And, you know, uh, churches are often a very uh, curated emotional experience. Mm-hmm. And so whatever they're selling is mm-hmm. going to be accepted. Sure. Um, but what what is that? What Why do people overswoon and what is the danger sometimes in that you think yeah i mean at least you know if i'm to apply my analytical mind to it you know merely because i I mean for me a lot of that has to do with just figuring out some sort of a triggered system where if i recognize it i try and say okay i need to step out and reevaluate and and shift more into the experiential but if i'm to if i'm to say well analytically what does my mind come back with when you ask that question it comes back with something like um It comes back with something like um, the danger there is that it, it you're basically treating a symptom. You know, you're not really you're not getting root cause. So Ooh, if if you're okay. saying, okay, well, all I need to do is turn the dial back down and just not over swoon. Well, that's not exactly it because there was a reason why that happened in the first place. Gotcha, gotcha. So you're, you're only affecting. You're throwing some Tylenol at change. potentially a. A yeah. headache caused by a tumor. You're not yeah, addressing. but the real question becomes what's what's lacking that's leading to that in the first place. What's you know, and oftentimes it's you know someone feeling like they want attention. They want some more attention. You know, they're not getting enough, or um, they're feeling insecure about something. So that kind of over swooning and gathering 
uh, commonality around them. Mm -hmm. You know, i.e. the attention kind of assuages that a little bit and, you know, puts, you know, salve on the on the sore or whatever. So but the real question there, you know, just like driving in the car, it's it's wait a minute, what's really bothering you? You know, right. What's manifesting itself here improperly that's really somewhere else? Hmm. Now, now, interestingly, I'm I don't think I'm an overswooner. I'm very critical. Mm. Uh, and that can be a very unpleasant thing to have to live with. You, sure. you can ask my wife that. Yeah. <laughs> and so you really have to protect certain parts of your life from this very critical nature. You have to yeah. protect your children from it. You have to protect your spouse from it. Absolutely. Um, and you have to protect yourself from it, I think, to oh, a large yeah. degree. I mean, sure. I, uh, you know, I've applied it, I think, at this point to an over amount to mm-hmm. what I believe to where it's brought me to a psychologically and emotionally unhealthy place. Yeah. Not deeply unhealthy, but it's at least right. I, I actively avoid uh, a quiet mind right now mm-hmm. because I don't want to deal with yeah. the things that are in my head. Sure. Like I want to be constantly engaged either in a discussion or clearing land or building Legos with my son sure. or, you know. Yeah, see, I had a girlfriend who I broke up with who went to that. Well, first she went to drinking. Yeah. And then she went to, well, drinking, this is really unhealthy. Uh, now I'm going uh, to take on three or four jobs simultaneously right. and join a rock band and join whatever else. So yeah. she literally traded in pure drunkenness for drunkenness of activity. So, I mean, mm. I would just encourage, you know, in, encourage that, you know, you know, you've got to confront that other stuff in yeah, some way. Yeah. And, you know, I would say that, that that kind of Eckhart Tolle, you know, if you can figure out that kind of trigger system thing for yourself, that if you identify for yourself, you know, why am I being so critical right now? Because, I mean, the analytical mind can be useful, but I view it as a tool. I mean, I think that yeah. it has the benefit if we want to construct something, if we want to make something happen, we can try and find component parts. And then we can, you know, assemble them or figure out how we need mm. to assemble them for ourselves. We can find analogies, but analogies are only useful, you know, to an extent, you know, because obviously no perf- no, there's no perfect analogy for sure. a situation. Sure. So we just find a principle that works and we can, you know, find a common principle. But in this case, I mean, I would say if you find yourself being unbelievably critical, it's, well, am I trying to understand this so that we can then find common ground? Am I trying to understand this so then we can make a solution? Am I trying, you know, what's, what's the motive behind me just being critical? Cause otherwise it's kind of a reflex. Otherwise it's just kind of a, yeah, I'm just right doing now this I'm using habit. it as a reflex. Yeah. And now the thing I would say, like to give myself an excuse, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is that the religion I was previously part of was extremely, uh, truth centered. Yeah. Like if, in my opinion, claiming asked, objective truth, right? That's what you exactly. said earlier. Yeah. And, and they're kind of specialties, specialists at that. Mm-hmm. And if you ask most anyone in that religion, in my opinion, mm. mostly the response would be, why, why are you of this religion? It would be because it has the most truth. Mm-hmm. Not it feeds my soul. Sure. Th- that would come later yeah. because almost you know it needs to do that. But y- you could go nowhere else because this had the most truth. Right. And... So the thing I've taken away from that religion, I mean, there's a lot of good moral and how to treat other people and how to interact with society that are all things that I've not cast away at Mm -hmm. all, Yeah. okay? 
But yeah, I mean, ethical moral moral frameworks are fantastic about religions. You know, I would yeah. never toss that aside whatsoever. They it's just often go the too dogma far. and the theological that demands a certain agreement that there's really no mutual exclusivity. It's not like you can't have that ethical moral system mm. without the other. Right. That, that's never been the it, case. Well, it's kind of the enforce. It's the big stick, yeah. you know, to, to a degree that, yeah. that kind of, uh, you know, like, well, you do this or else the big guy is going to, you know, which I think works in a more desperate society. Yeah. But when you get to a society where you're not really going to be worried about being eaten by a predator on the way home. Right. Or mugged on the way home, you know, it could happen, you know, but it, it's just not pressing on us. And, and right. when you exist in the, this mindset that we get to exist in now, you mm. start to focus inward and focus on things that have, it's kind of like you've done the big journey and now you're turning around looking at the things that brought you through that journey to see how to repair them to now act upon where mm -hmm. you've come. And yeah. I think that's appropriate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, me turning around, looking at my belief system and everything else, I think is appropriate and, and good. Yeah. And, and I think religions, belief systems, societies all go through this process of intellectualizing them when they get to a point of peace, prosperity, where they can turn around and look at them. Mm. Um, but the thing I've brought out of that previous religion that I'm, I'm not able to shake, and I don't think I want to shake, but maybe I do need to, I don't know, is this insistence on truth. And I think I might be taking it to too deep of a level because okay. I think, honestly, that there might be no real truth. Like, nothing may actually be true as much as it is relatively true. Yeah, well, that's one of the things... I worry about that. And I know that's a very postmodernist viewpoint, yeah. but I have a hard time disproving that you know and, and it i'm curious what you mean but i guess i'm curious what you mean by truth in this context because i come from the point of view of you know again of a, of a, a bit of a nietzschean and, and nietzsche's thing is you know the things that are true are useful and the things that are untrue are not useful all right so what would you what would you see as true um, you know, something that was something that was verifiable, um, either by uh, empirical approach or um, I'd say there also has to be another area that we we have a poor definition for, which would be something like the empirical uh, empirical experiential, as we were talking mm -hmm. about that difference between the experiential and the analytical. So, right. I mean, obviously, empiricism. Walk, walk me through like what you would see different between the experiential way of knowing and the empirical way of knowing. That's interesting. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it for me, it's a little bit. Um, so I'm just going to mention one quick reference because it kind of it, it ties it up and I can bring a little simple example from it, which is sure. um, Aristotle, one of his books that um, I think is one of the most fascinating because uh, mm -hmm. some of them are rather obtuse at this point, you know, to be frank with you. But um, the Nicomachean Ethics and his politics, they both refer to uh, a method of um, having people repeat things. So whether or not if somebody has the good in them and they're just one of those people that's like, able to work on themselves and no problem and there are no major road bumps and they're always doing the right thing and they're always helping others and so on and so forth. Those person by, you know, sort of Plato and Aristotle are described as kind of having gold souls or, you know, right. they're kind of operating on a different plane. But then his claim would be that then there are other people who don't necessarily have that, but they're capable of um, repeating steps such that they're sort of like that or they can approach that. 
And so that's Ooh. where I think of something like an experiential, which is interesting, where what if I do kind of proceed, you know, what if I have habits, good habits, that somebody else kind of helps me see, a code of some kind, and I mimic those. If, if, if I'm mimicking them with frustration, then it's one thing. If I'm mimicking them with some openness, if I'm mimicking them with the ability to to say, well, something might change in me while I'm going through this. Right, like if you're mimicking them, realizing that you're just going through the motions to see what can be learned from these, yeah. uh, that that's interesting because that's basically religion. To a I large think of degree. it almost like a little bit of a, a boot camp scenario to yeah. some degree that there's like, you know, because if you take a, a new recruit, I mean, week one, I mean they're going to curse to high heavens about what they're going through. Mm -hmm. But then if you find like, you know, most like career military folks at the end and they speak back about boot camp, they speak very favorably about yeah, it yeah. and realize that there was something in that experience which was very valuable. You're right, yeah. So it's something like that that it's possible for us to undergo a shift in an experiential fashion and to some degree... There's a way of reproducing that in an experiential way that, you know, if you, whether it's just simple, simply, um, you know, practice, I mean, for, you know, let's take a sports analogy, you know, if, what if I practice? I mean, the first time right. I do something, maybe I don't catch the ball very well, but then, you know, I do it over and over and over again. And now it's like, I can look away and catch it. I can do all kinds right. of things after that has really been hardwired into, I mean, that's a muscle memory example, right, purely right, speaking, right. but I think you probably follow my yeah. meaning of the analogy. Yeah, the, the, exper the experiential, yeah, it's like different people have different ways of learning. Yeah. Um, and there's what the, the thing that I was talking to you about when you came through the door that was kind of creepy, mm. because we'll leave that unnamed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, um, I think that, for that person, the experiential going through those processes, mm -hmm. uh, what I talked to that person about really has helped them move to a different place in life. Mm -hmm. And and that's where I can see uh, religion serving people very well. Mm -hmm. And I get why we had it, even if it is a, a evolutionary creation uh, as part of our social structure to guide us. Mm -hmm. And there's absolutely no truth behind it. I can still see the benefits that it brought, mm -hmm. um, while at the same time, the very highly uh, materialist perspectives and atheistic ideologies might want to do away with it. You know, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a safe thing to do until the collective consciousness does away with it naturally, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but that being said, I still I still have an inkling that there's to me it seems so obvious that there's has to be something more than this. But I know all the arguments and I'll I can hear them already in my head yelling back at me like, Well, of course you have an inkling because one, you want there to be life after death and mm -hmm. you want you have all these desires. Yeah. But the 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 reality, the the material truth of it is that we we don't know how we got here. Yeah. You know, we have a, a flashlight shining back in time that we can, you know, to a degree with empirical certainty, know certain things just by projecting them back. If all things were in a constant state, um, that gives, gives us an idea of our history. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's still like, 
where on earth did the laws of, or where in the universe did, you know, the laws of physics come, the law of mathematics, all that. And, you know, and to get back to what is, you know, uh, actually true like i start at mathematics that's Mm. to me the only thing i can really come down to being true and then everything else is relatively true yeah you know well the thing about mathematics that's interesting though i mean you know again this is i'm someone who's had you know four years of reading through some papers i'm certainly by no means i I know a mathematics professor at northeastern who's doing things like guarantee you're better than me (laughs) singular singularity stuff and you know like which is the theoretical center of black holes like all of this incredible mathematics that goes to the nth dimensions and i mean crazy out there stuff that will not have an application for who knows how many amazing the the picture of reality that they can paint just with mathematics oh yeah well they're internally consistent systems right so that's one of the things that was really bizarre at st john's is everyone kind of falls in love with Euclid at the beginning because so many of those propositions are very easy. Like a triangle is this. If you put a triangle to a square, you can say certain things about the square. There are all these relationships that Mm -hmm. are easy to pass from one thing to another. And you say, wow, that was really phenomenal until you arrive at the Pythagorean theorem or at St. John's, everyone calls it, um, you know, book one, prop 47, because that's how it's laid out in, in, um, in Euclid. But at any rate, you start there and you have your, um, there are five, um, you know, postulates at the beginning that everything stands upon. Well, one of them is that parallel lines never meet. So there's now an entire system of mathematics called nonlinear geometry, mm-hmm. which changes that one pre- presupposition, which claims that parallel lines will meet. And it's based upon curvature, that when they, you know, when they're curving around something, They'll if it's a sphere. Actually, at some point, they will actually meet. If it's a sphere, right? Or I, you know, to be honest, in my in, in a part of my senior year, I started to you know kind of gloss over, so I can't <laughs> I can't remember it very well at the end there. But I remember right. that that was the subtle change because Einstein as well makes a subtle change for relativity, and that's where that comes from. Right. Which is basically previously we thought, well, all velocities are additive; it doesn't matter how fast you're going. If you throw something while you're driving in a car, that's going to add your thrown velocity to the car velocity. Right. Well, that turns out not to be true for light. And right. so, right, that's so crazy. Yeah, well, that's the same kind of bait and sw- well, not bait and switch, but that's the kind of the same switch that's made in non-Euclidean, where you take that one original common notion which has to be true for the entire system to work and then you change that one thing and all of a sudden you're like wait a minute reality this done. whole thing <laughs> has to different. be fixed but i mean the the resolution that ended up happening as a result of relativity that was very interesting eventually and and had to be done for quantum physics too was that well if we're talking about macro scale stuff newtonian physics is still true right all that math still works right but at the edges of it when we're talking about either the monstrously, monstrously megascopic or the super, super microscopic, the rules are actually different there. Um, So that was a, you know, a very strange fundamental realization. Yeah, it's like, to me, it's again, coming back to like, truth is relative it's relative to your size at that point you know? yeah well that's that's where i like you know i personally have enjoyed nietzsche's you know as a little bit of a guidepost for myself just that is it useful is there a use here like mm-hmm. for me to sit here and pound my fist and say well no 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 this is the objective truth this is hard reality i mean i'm just not sure what that is i'm not sure what it is in me anymore that demands that there is such a thing um yeah that's a fair question why 
Yeah, you know, it seems like the the closer you can be to truth, the better the better off you would be. But at some point, do uh, you know? Do I have to let go of this idea of truth? You know, yeah. uh, how about just the the best uh, the best existence within this reality? And it might not be that you know uh, truth leads you to that. It mm-hmm. might the <laughs> Again, the truth might be that, you know, not worrying so much about the absolute truth is, is the best thing, which uh, another person I had talked to uh, had made the point that the your mind really doesn't care anything about truth as much as it cares about the things that are going to best equip you to survive. Mm-hmm. You know, and, yeah, that, that's exactly where Nietzsche comes from. It's, it's all about you know, ultimately survival, what's useful, uh, what makes us stronger and able to, um, handle existence, you know, right. and he's looking at things from that point of view. Have you ever heard Nietzsche's, I mean, this, this is an interesting wrench to throw in to somebody who's, um, you know, do, going through the mental exercise. Cause that's what I'm interested in at this point, especially after reading the Einstein stuff is that he does a lot of, and why he arrived at his conclusions so exceptionally, he carried out mental experiments all the time. Yeah, and so for me, though, lots having lots of those is very interesting because it takes my mind away from something else, which formerly might have felt like, well, this is abs- absolutely got to be it. But then I go, wait a minute, I just did this mental experiment, and I felt that as I was going through it, and I went, whoa, that is something else. So, have you ever heard of Nietzsche's uh, recurrence, eternal recurrence of the same? Hmm. So, at one point, there was the the theory in physics of uh, a big bang was followed by the big crunch and that that cycle would repeat over and over again. I mean, there are conflicting theories now that maybe it's a big bang and then a sputter or, I mean, there's all kinds of theories in physics now as far as what actually happens. But at one point, the big bang and big crunch thing led to the ability of you imagining that what if you were to live your life, this life, over and over and over again, an infinite number of times. If, if I didn't know that I was reliving it each time, I, you know, whatever. Yeah, but, but knowing that in this moment. If I were to know that in this moment. What's the consequence of that? Because for, for Nietzsche, that was like an ultimate either affirmation or if you lived your life in a way that you were incredibly proud of and felt oh. was amazing or... If you felt that all the frustrations, because I mean, you've been voicing a lot of frustrations that you feel like as though you've had some failings, you know, interpersonally and so on and so forth over the past 10 years, you know, what's the the downside of that is knowing I'm going to make those same mistakes an infinite number of times. But but at the same time, were I to live everything over again, I, the reality of my human animal existence is that I wouldn't come to this place had I not made those mistakes. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, you know, mistakes are some of the most valuable things you can do. Oh, absolutely. You know, unless you're just born perfect and you know everything, how to do perfect all the time. Right. I mean, we have to make mistakes. And I think those, if you can, if you can transfer anything on to anyone else is to look at any situation where you fail as just a huge opportunity uh, to claim like, yeah, I, I really messed that up. Mm. But the great thing is that I've learned from it yeah. and that I can do everything I can to make this right. And to, you know, never let this kind of thing 
happen again yeah. and to talk about that experience yeah. to let other people know right that you know shame necessarily isn't something that we have to let shut us up and not talk about our failures because yeah. yeah there was in the moments of hearing other people say yeah you're you're quite a you're quite an a-hole trent and you're you're not that great a husband yeah, you yeah. know um that that was really you know like that was just crushing to me yeah um but i had to in that moment go I, you know, these people can't be wrong, honestly. Right. You know, I mean, they have no skin in the game. They're not benefiting by telling me this information. Yeah. They're yeah. risking their relationship with me yeah. to tell me these things. Right. So, first of all, thank you to them for being honest. Right. And what am I going to deny? Like, no, I'm not. Well, I, you know, ask my wife, ask these people, you know, multiple sources. <laughs> you know, so that's really hurtful and shameful to me personally, but then you have to realize you've been hurtful to other, you know, people that are very valuable to you. Mm -hmm. And the best thing you can do is just, uh, admit, embrace and, and make that part of your history that you share. Yep. And, and, and other people might look at it and say, you know, he was living his life oblivious to him being that way. Yeah. And he's changed maybe I should look at my life and see if there's some things I might be being oblivious to one to avoid the, the shame and the, you know, the crushing realization of, of having to go through that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just that, that experience of if you, if you've had that experience, you can connect with other people who are going through it or potentially about to go through it in mm -hmm. the same situation, which I think is just very, very important, um, in life. So don't know where I'm going with that beyond venting or self-soothing. I don't know. <laughs> but where where are you at? Where have you come with belief knowing all these yeah. these things or working through all these things? So I'd say, you know, when I when I arrived at St. John's, I was kind of at a I had a good clean slate to some degree where um, you'd already kind of become agnostic trending yeah. towards atheists. Yeah, it was definitely, like there. I say, kind of a, a deist. You know, I, I thought that given the complexity of the universe, there may be some sort of a, an impartial creator uh, mm -hmm. of some kind that put that all together or super genius alien intelligences or... Same thing. Who knows what? Um, yeah. To, to, well, to an extent, yeah. Um, and then, you know, as I sort of worked through the all, you know, all the great books of the West, I'd say... Um, you know, then I arrived at kind of a confused place, but I had a lot of the classical notions. I learned a lot of, you know, these, like, for instance, you know, a lot of people don't know the difference between, um, you know, eros and philos in the, in the, the U.S. now, the two of the Greek notions of love. There's a third one, too, but... Yeah, there's brotherly Agathos. love. Yeah, yeah, that's philos. Brother eros, erotic love. Yeah. Uh, but those words are very interesting and, and can be applied in an interesting way, especially relationally, which is that Eros is the sort of love where you care um, how another person makes you feel, but not overly much about that other person whatsoever. Right. Yeah. So if being with that person, you know, whatever, they're great looking or whatever, and you just feel great about being around they them. They turn you on. That's right. great. 
you know, or the the pleasure you find together, you know, you go out together. I mean, there are different degrees of erotic right. love, but um, but the, the key thing is you're kind of getting a high, and you don't particularly care how they're doing at, at all. Right. It doesn't it's, mean that you don't, but it's not... Well, that's not a core part of, of Eros. Right. That's right. where Philos comes in, where Philos is you care about the other thing, and you don't care overly much about how it makes you feel. That's pure, just the urge of philos. Hmm. So, I mean, there are a lot of these, there are a lot of relationships. And I think, you know, in a lot of cases, w- women or the role of a woman in our society, such as it's manifested itself, is that, you know, a lot of women will care about the other person and really want good things for them and are willing to suffer through and eat a lot of junk in mm. order to still remain there right. nurturing encouraging right. etc versus you know i think a lot of men or the masculine or the male role or whatever you want to say often airs on the other side of the eros where right. they're thrilled with the drunkenness of the whole experience and really are probably only going to give enough maintenance to the other thing you know unless that other thing is that this rock as you described your wife in the second episode right. you know immovable rock it just finally just goes no <laughs> your attention <laughs> needs to go line, right buddy. here yeah exactly yeah so but so those were kind of serviceable concepts that i grabbed throughout that so at a certain point though i'd say that i you know started encountering other um spiritual possibilities i guess than just the christian because certainly while i was at st john's i read uh, almost all of the bible you read that in your sophomore year i also read a bunch of st augustine and thomas aquinas and Maimonides and several others um, that are part of the western tradition of theology Um, and so you know i got my full helping of okay this is how all of this works and then i got my full helping of the postmodernists including obviously nietzsche saying god is dead Um, and, and actually understanding that because that's one thing that's actually frequently misunderstood which is that mm. he meant that when something is founded there's an active principle that's very strong so for instance when christianity was founded there was this kind of idea or motivational um outflowing outreach that we're going to create this you actually referred to something very close to it what he means about it earlier um when you were referring to um there being uh how did you describe it? I can't remember the words you used. Um, shoot, it's lost to me this moment. I'll, I'll, Might have a tick underneath your forearm there. I don't know. No. no. Well, okay. Yeah. When no. you're moving. You're quite right because it is he's, Maine. A, he's a guy who brings them around. Yeah. Um, sorry, I've lost that reconnection point. Um, Nietzsche, God is dead. Yeah, that, that basically that over time, whatever that original foundational principle was, it kind of loses its, um, I guess its potency is maybe the best oh, word. Okay. So when he's saying God, God is dead, he's saying that basically all we're doing now is paying lip service to something which did exist at the founding point. Right. But now, oh, that's what, sorry, now it just came back to me what it was. You were referring to um, there, having, there being a kind of survival quality or usefulness. Mm. Um, and the way I think of it is, does it serve the species? You were referring right. it to, in a right. kind of similar context. Yeah. yeah, That's how I'm starting to frame a lot of thoughts for myself is, does this system serve the species? So, for instance, you referred to earlier, you know, once upon a time, Christianity um, clearly was serving the species to an extent. Right. Um, you know, and I would agree that at a certain point it had, I think of it now as kind of a frontier religion, um, that we were trying to push out into areas that were unknown, areas that were unsafe, 
Uh, it encouraged things like massive procreation. It encouraged things like, um, you know, it encouraged certain things that at that stage of the species made a lot of sense. And now when I see a lot of political discourse, I am constantly confronted with the reality that a lot of people are still arguing um, held beliefs which come from a time when the species was one thing. But I think we're at a critical species inflection point right now mm. where we actually need to start dispensing with frontier systems. Yeah. So right. not only religions, but also, or when I say dispense, I guess another way of putting that could also be we need oh, to, to uh, evolve. Evolve them. Yeah. Right. So here's an interesting. And also economic system, which is another key one. But yeah, we'll leave I that always aside thought for now. economics was only to do with money, but it's kind of economics. It, yeah, I can't even. Well, still it's fair exchange it, of, of right. all stuff, all things, yeah. right? So the economics of how we came to be uh, one man, one woman. How do we trade? How do we trade one another's um, time? I mean, because that's really the right. big unit, right? You might want to rotate yourself oh, that way because we're filming your back that yeah. way. Um, so, uh, the, as you were saying, the um, the interesting thing, why why religion is held on in America far more than Europe, mm. right? So the other first world countries uh, are trending far more. The church attendance is diving mm -hmm. and, you know, it's they're becoming more atheistic, agnostic, right? Mm -hmm. But there's this hanging on in the first world country of America yeah. with religion for some reason. Mm -hmm. And interestingly to what you're saying you know does it do the species well they're finding the need for it in america comes from we're one of the only first world countries to not have really socialized health care yep. or higher education yeah so, it's, it's really impoverished conditions right i mean you can to a degree you yeah can break it down to medicine you could break it down to any of those different things but you need community when you're suffering, when you're failing, you know, at life in terms of material conditions. You really need a group. Right. And so where we have so many groups that are so disenfranchised in this country, whereas most of Europe has been reaching towards socialism of kind of lifting everybody up to some extent. Mm -hmm. Now, it may be a democratized socialism, you know, right. certainly. And I don't mean to make it sound like it's, um, you know, a you know, Russian sort of approach or, or some of the other approaches that yeah. have failed along it's the way. It's Scandinavian socialism. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the, the key there is that, is, is it serving the species? I mean, I think those are really important questions because I still hear, you know, the same things framed in old ways. And, you know, when I hear that, I realize that the person is not realizing that we're at a very critical juncture for the species right now. Mm -hmm. The decisions that we're making they have to be species centered or like we're literally going to stop being a species. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're still, we're still thinking in the, in, in these old ways. Mm -hmm. And I mean, population control is a real issue in my opinion. Supposedly the population is going to balance out according to some people and, and we'll be just fine. But I mean, why on earth would anyone have more than two kids is, is beyond me not to shame people into that, but it, it just it just seems like, you know, resources, time. I mean, for me, I didn't have more than two kids because just I, I wanted to have a close relationship mm. with my children. Yeah. For I, I do think that only having one kid is slightly cruel to the child because they're stuck with two adults the whole time. Mm. Like I watch my two boys play and it's really great that they have each other yeah. to just, you know, because they're they entertain each other and, and mm -hmm. have 
this dynamic of fighting and making up and learning far more than they would have just interacting with, you know, mom and dad. Um, and I forget totally where I was going with that, but. (laughs) Well, I mean, we've been bouncing around with it. Just the idea of, you know, does it serve the species? I mean, do do religion serve the species? Do economic systems serve the species? So at any rate, I guess, let me circle back around to kind of where I've ended up because that's, you know, I was trying to go with a chronological approach. To not leave the serving the species too quickly. Uh, I still find like in America, we have, we still have this need for religion because we have healthcare and a lot of debt for certain things Mm -hmm. nipping at our heels. Mm -hmm. So there's that insecurity created, Mm -hmm. which helps us gravitate towards religion and where in other first world countries, they don't have that and religion dies away or changes to a far more liberal form of religion more naturally. Um, now, uh, darn, where was I going with that again? The, Oh, so I find myself, you know, I've gotten to a place where I have a good enough income to not have to constantly worry about money. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I still, I still need hope and meaning. Yeah. Where, where do we find our hope and meaning outside of, um, religion how do you do that like i i can start to get behind the ideas of how we now find our moral compass Mm -hmm. you know minus religion i can to a degree uh get on board with that but if i look at our whole existence as just being we we just started to mold on an orange you know like i Mm. i'm I have a hard time avoiding seeing humanity as just mold on an orange. Sure. We're, we're yeah. a scourge on the earth, you know, it, yeah. like what, what meaning or purpose is there? What, what hope is there? Why, you know, what's your understanding or where does, um, consciousness fit? I mean, the phenomena of consciousness, where does that fit into your, uh, kind of worldview schema? Well, I hate the idea that consciousness is just the reality that we experience you know, sitting atop of billions of gate switches, you know, and, and do you know what I mean by that? Like a, yeah, a all thermostat. All the cells of the body, all yeah, building. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, the lowest form of consciousness being a thermostat on the wall. It it monitors something and then has a reaction and it's limited in that. So it's the just single a cell organisms, switch. yeah. Yeah, and that we're just, you know, consciousness is a phenomenon of, you know, the the highest level of all these gate switches and and communications and everything because we have all these autonomic responses in our body that that do them unconsciously and Mm -hmm. um but to me coming from my background when i started to attempt to meditate i eventually got discouraged because there's too much monkey brain and i just didn't want to sit alone with my own thoughts which i need to get back to that but at some point i realized there's there's an observer in your head, mm-hmm. kind of like a, I don't know, like an obelisk or something in a river. And the river is all the thoughts. Mm-hmm. And this kind of gets into free will and, and determinism as well. Mm-hmm. But it's like, where are these thoughts coming from? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. Yeah. And I can kind of, yeah. I can tint the content of these thoughts by what I choose to consume and focus on. Mm -hmm. I can, I can affect the rate of flow of these thoughts and the, you know, harshness of them and and everything. Like you're saying, sitting in traffic, I think there's, you know, this idea of of exploding. But you can't ever really can, you can't control what the next thought is. that's going to come in, right? You, well, see, I can see myself as this, 
monolith in a river yeah. and my observer consciousness is sure. this monolith that's yeah. there just watching all this water of thoughts coming right. by and i can choose what to embrace as it's going by or i can just let it all go by yeah and i've never really experienced that separation of consciousness and thought mm -hmm. i always thought they were just simply one like mm -hmm. i was constantly a um I was constantly plastered against a the interior of a uh, of of a circle. Like if you were to go to Times Square and see all those things running along the buildings, yep. I was in the middle of a circle of that, and I wasn't in the middle. Actually, I was plastered out against that. There was oh, yeah. no separation yes. between my observing and the thoughts, and there was it was in an ability. Yeah. And then one day, two years ago, I was sitting there trying to just quiet my mind. And there was a cricket outside the window and he was in this rhythm. And all of a sudden I went from being plastered on those plasma and jumbotrons to just, I was in the middle. Yeah. And then all of a sudden my observer was separated from the thoughts. Right. Uh, that my consciousness really was no different. I wasn't in any different place, but all of a sudden I realized that those are thoughts out there that I'm not necessarily controlling where they're coming from and where they're going, but I, as the observer, will choose to grab onto some of those and bring them into yeah. my existence and act upon them. Right. And that separation of thought and observer to me that's about as far as I can get on consciousness yeah. at this point. Yeah, I'll give you, Heidegger has an interesting analogy, uh, which he became, so I didn't go to St. John's four straight. I went to St. John's for two and a half, had a huge heartbreak, stepped away, had a bit of a career, and then came back and finished my last two years. So I think it was maybe eight or nine years total yep. until I wrapped it up because I, I really wanted to be able to be present with the books. I didn't want to just get the diploma and be done. I, it was important to me to go there. Probably having that life experience and maturation uh, yeah. probably uh, ingrained your experience a lot more. Into it definitely you. was. So when I went back to St. John's for my senior year, I, I studied, um, they have in the spring for uh, juniors and seniors, you have a, a precept where you get to choose. That's the only time at St. John's where you really have any choice. Um, which book you want to study intensively for, I think it's like eight weeks. Um, so I chose to do a precept on Heidegger. And, and anyway, his analogy is um, that our consciousness is basically a clearing in a forest. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to your analogy about Times Square, something just comes into that clearing from out of the forest. Yeah. With no idea what it's going to be at any given moment. I mean, it could be just about anything. Um, complete non sequitur stuff, you know, who knows? Um, a lot of things are kind of linked in certain ways, you know, and connected, sure. but there's no guarantee of that, as you say. But, you know, we are just the observer of that clearing, you know, in his analogy. And one of the things that he mentions is what a huge degree of arrogance we have to assume that the conscious mind, the organized mind, the analytical mind, whatever you want to refer to it as, that that should gain preeminence. Because seemingly, the forest is much larger. Mm. Yeah. The infinite realm of thought is much larger. And who knows what's going to come? And we don't have control. The only thing we have control of, to your point, is how do I react to the thing that comes in there? Right. And it's actually very new. It's a very new thing. Really only a couple of thousands of years now for us to grab each thought that comes in and demand of it that it organizes itself somehow. Hmm. Oh, link it up with this thought. 
put it on that pile over there so that later it will have a use. Similarly, I'm right. stacking these things. That is a new way of thinking. Hmm. Like the species did not always do that. The species used to, oh, is there a lesson? Is this thought a lesson? There's a, you know, they viewed it as that. This is an endless stream of lessons that keep coming to me. Let me find that. That was one approach at one point. Certainly right. a lot of religions follow that path. This was, oh, you know, this came in. Oh, uh, you know, let me just observe it dispassionately and see, you know, what it has to say. I mean, maybe it's a lesson. Maybe it's just random. I don't know. So there were all types of different approaches to how do I react to or how do I respond, you know, how do I interact with my conscious mind? And it right. was not, you know, always I need to gain power from this at all times because that's ultimately what it's become is I need this constant standing reserve, you know, of all of these concepts and elaborate things so that if I come into a situation, I have an incredibly long lever to be able to accomplish whatever it is. Right, right. Yeah, that, that grabbing for power, I think it's responsible for the uh, empiricalization mm-hmm. of um, the recent religions being, you know, Seventh Adventism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, the more recent religions mm-hmm. that are far more certainty-based, mm-hmm. right? I think there was the scientific revolution, mm-hmm. and we saw, wow, there's incredible... Um, advantage, you know, you can create quite a lever Mm. with this scientific process and all these data points that we can pin down and then manipulate. And, you know, that empirical process, I think religion observed and lost a lot for it. And to a large degree said, well, if you can't beat them, join them, maybe not consciously, but unconsciously. And then you get these religions that, um, uh, project themselves as being far more in line with kind of a scientific approach mm. rather than this experiential approach. Now, what you were saying just now is interesting to me in that you have all you have experiences in life that you'll get lessons from and learn from and it's almost like experiences are the same things as thoughts when you break it down as an observer in a clearing to a degree, right? That these thoughts yeah. are coming at you like experiences. Right. That, you know, your experiences to a degree you can control, yeah. but at the same time you can't control. And your thoughts, kind of the same thing. I think, I think thought, there can be thoughts which um, seem to kind of originate from experiences, right? I mean, there, yeah. there can be kind of echoes of experiences that then we can choose to respond to as though they were kind of independent disembodied thoughts and apply our analytical mind to and try and break apart and whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there are also, on some level, there's an experience which kind of also can stand separately from the thought of the experience that comes out. For instance, you know, the, the muscle fatigue or something like that. Because then, say, for instance, I get, oh, fatigued muscles, this links up with, I know that there's lactic acid stuff, and I know that workouts, I'm supposed to do this. You know, that whole chain could, like, light up, mm-hmm. you know, and then you have your patterned response to it. Versus, you know, sometimes, you know, as I've gotten older, if I get, like, a, a workout, you know, muscle fatigue or something like that, I go, you know, this feels good. Like, and there's something just rewarding in this. Yeah. yeah. And I don't immediately need to remediate this. You know? Right. Whereas when I'm in my twenties, I'm like, Oh, I need to make sure I get a lot of protein for the rebuild and all this stuff right, right now. Right. Or something like that. Yeah. I just, 
I've, I've lost the ability to jog or run because I got plantar fasciitis in my right foot right now. So I got, and it's like, geez, I haven't been able to do anything that makes me sweat because yeah. I don't really like road biking or anything mm -hmm. else, but I got a recumbent bike. And so I put on YouTube and mm -hmm. go to like philosophy stuff or whatever. Yeah. But like at the end of it, I'm sweating. I'm like, this is really nice. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so where, where are you at with consciousness and all this as it applies to the ideas of the very ill-defined idea yeah. of free will and determinism. Well, I guess let me get to the while before we depart from you know the concept of consciousness. One of the reasons why I wanted to bring that up is because I think it's interesting that in the West we've made some very strong assertions and we've made some very strong um, actions as a result of what we've determined is going to be the truth for us about consciousness. Yeah, okay. including psychiatric drugs. Oof. Yeah, which it, I have some friends that are cognitive scientists. Yeah, and are we okay on time? Yeah, I'm sure. I, yeah. yeah, we're totally fine. Okay, good. Yep. Um, we we don't have any real firm conclusions at a very basic level. So the studies are trying to focus on um, thought waves was one attempt, right? So we have, you know, the alpha brain patterns and beta, so on and so forth. I think the, there are four the they've cricket identified. cricket helped me out with that thing. Yeah, yeah. So there are four brain patterns which are measurable. So that's one thing yep. we know that can be measured. And then we also know that there are chemical firings. That's another thing that we've actually seen. Receptors and... But here's the part where if, you're, if we're really honest scientists then we're interested in causation and we're not interested in correlation. And we don't believe that correlation equates to causation right, because it right, does not. Right. Uh, however, it is very frequently mistaken for it. So we right. have to be almost really on guard about that. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Well, sometimes, yeah, it, but it's, sometimes it's a useful guidepost to look, sure, but right. not to make a conclusion. And unfortunately Absolutely. with science, because if something has a satisfying market result, We'll often take a correlation and substitute it for causation. Well, which is yeah, and religion suffers terrible. from the same thing. Yeah, you know the, this idea of like, well, I prayed and I found my keys right. you know, to the to the nth degree. Yeah. <sighs> so I mean, that's one of the interesting things to me is that scientists have not been able to identify clearly whether or not a thought occurs first hmm. and then causes the chemical firing and causes the brainwave pattern. Or if it's the brainwave pattern that's happening first, and then that causes the other two, or it's the chemical firing first, and then that causes the other it's two. Very interesting stuff. It's coral. It's pure correlation at this point. We just right. know the three things kind of happen together. We have no idea about causal relationships. But to have jumped to the market solution of a <sighs> psychiatric approach, mm, mm. we've presumed that it's chemical. However, I mean, I would argue at this point mm. that we've actually disproven that it can be that because of the number of folks who, in taking those things, are not getting the same result. Right. It's not causing the same thought patterns. It's not causing the same causal effect. So mm. if anything, I think it, it should have given us ample evidence for that. But of course now we have entrenched, you know, Profits, tens and hundreds and of billions, you know, that are trying to defend themselves and all else. Yeah. But at any rate, I think that's an interesting consideration about consciousness is just that we're really not sure exactly what sort of a phenomena it is. Right. And, and I guess where I get to with it or where I'm interested in, you know, thinking about that or how it works for me. And again, this is just, 
um, you know, maybe kind of jumping into intuition more than anything else. And it's not that I need this to be right. It's just that I found it to be for me a more plausible scenario, which is that it may be an extra dimensional type of a phenomena, um, that we as beings, you know, do I know what we are? Am I trying to posit something strong? No, I don't know what the substance is, but when I see that, um, when there's a being that's encased in a human body, um, and has this kind of brain pan, right? That, um, the beings that inhabit them seemingly are all different. I mean, they all have a lot of different qualities and, you know, even through twin studies and everything else, we can't exclusively say, well, it's the genetics that plays out and we can't exclusively say it's the nurturing, you know, the nature and nurture debate, right? Yeah. Some of the stuff I've heard recently, and I, I use this as a fallback to comfort myself when I'm, when I'm not the best parent, you know, Mm. it's like you really only have about a 20 to maybe 30% effect on what your kids develop into, you know? And, you know, I do my best to be a great dad, but, you know, there's, you, you, you know. Oh, uh, you're not the exclusive, you know, by any means, you know, you don't have exclusive control over the outcomes. No, no way. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so at any rate, that that just gets me to a point where I wonder if we are, uh, you know, did you ever read uh, or hear of uh, Flatland, the old book from the 1800s? Yeah. Yeah. The idea of, you know, the fact that maybe we're just these cubes that are, crossing through a two-dimensional plane maybe we're just a four-dimensional being crossing through a three-dimensional existence Mm -hmm. and there's lots of us you know in either direction you know that we can't you know perceive because we only have 3d perceptions who knows now did you hear and joe rogan in one of his recent podcasts was talking about kind of like the zone that you can get into when you're i've heard him refer to that a few times when he's like doing stand up well oh, yeah. yeah that well i'm i'm specifically talking about multiple consciousnesses being okay. together in the same place okay and he gets into this zone where it's like it's like all of these consciousnesses sinking up mm. and to me there there has to be something in there that is another dimensional thing yeah. where that i think it's common in in group dynamics of of church of stand-up comedy those, mm-hmm. those are two very on the outset two aliens would look at that and say like yeah the same thing's going on here someone's yeah. up front and they're all kind of watching and this right. is controlling and yeah um but you know that that idea of what's going on there when a lot of people come together and all these singular consciousnesses come together as a group mm-hmm. there's something there that to get psychoanalytical a little bit on myself that I've always been uncomfortable with Mm. that I don't, I do not like, uh, being in the group. Mm. I'll be the one person up front. Thank you very much. If you want me to, but I can't sit out there and be, uh, influenced by all the other maybe consciousness is doing their processing mm. if that's going to influence me in a way i don't understand because mm. i don't know the thought process that each of you have going on and if that's influencing me mm. i don't want to be a part of that yeah so i i don't know what it is psychologically why i've always shied away from group interactions sure. i mean i've only ever even been to like one uh what i would call a rock concert because yeah. i just it's like a that group dynamic to me is just like, I don't 
like it. Yeah. And no, I don't like being in massive crowds either. I've always definitely tried to get away from them. I've, I've never enjoyed large parties either. Oh, yeah. I much no, prefer no. informal stuff where I could be off on the side having a small conversation with oh, yeah. so you're, two or you're three people. So you're somewhat introverted like myself, I'd imagine. Yeah, I'm one of those, uh, what do they call it? An extroverted, capable introverts or something okay. where I can put on the face, I can be yeah, that, but yeah. if I do it, I need immense recharge time yeah, like first i cannot sustain that yeah yeah, yeah. so like, i mean conversations like this i'll feel energized afterwards and, yeah. I, and i love them but to to have to walk through a crowd like that's again another thing with church that was always so uncomfortable for me is like to just get from the car to uh you know having like a what what they would call Sabbath school discussion, yeah. which which I enjoyed because it was usually a smaller group mm. dissecting something, talking about it, which I really got into that, and it was it was I, I benefited from that. But then you had to go out into the hallway afterwards and interact with small talk with people and get to yeah. the thing where everyone shut up and one person talked, and then they'd stand up and down and up and down and up and down, and then they'd have an emotional experience. And it was just like, ah, I'm so uncomfortable with this part of all of that. Right. And I feel discouraged that there's there's a large um, un- inability for people of my disposition, presumably your disposition, to uh, partake of these seemingly uh, beneficial group coherence things. Yeah. But I have to tell myself that I serve a purpose in some way. Even that I don't fit into that is okay, mm-hmm. and that I serve a purpose more in this realm yeah. of more one-on-one, more maybe dissecting things, which might put me at more risk of losing meaning and losing hope. Mm-hmm. And that then it's required of me to uh, not shut myself off completely to those kind of things and, yeah. and allow some hope and everything else. But I don't know. Yeah. There's, hmm, I'm not, I, I kind of want to keep going with this and not jump to something else, although Go. there's something yeah. else that's connected. Um, well, just that, you know, I kind of wanted to keep going with the, you know, so for me, the, the consciousness question, you know, and also Heidegger's take on that is interesting because he actually has a very bizarre and interesting way that he comes back and says that we do partake in a divinity and we do partake in something like a god. Mm-hmm. Um, which, uh, with him following immediately after Nietzsche and being really one of the kind of chief interpreters of Nietzsche uh, in the tradition, is really bizarre because you're like, wait a minute, what? We're getting back to divinity? We're getting back to... How on earth are we doing that? And he actually approaches it through through art and lists a number of different extreme examples and, and refers to... There's one certain bridge that he um, you know really... Uh, goes through as an example, and uh, a certain old uh, ancient Greek temple, um, you know, somewhere on a cliffside, that there's something about a relational component of understanding how art can have um, one interconnectedness in terms of its appropriateness for the area that it is. So I guess this would be almost sort of like a Frank Lloyd Wright type of a concept where... um, you know, Wright obviously was hugely influenced by the environment that he was putting his piece, you know, his, his houses in and things. Mm-hmm. So having that awareness, but also having an awareness of the time, the people, you know, the time in which we live, the people that were going to be coming there, the effect that it was going to have on them. There's something in the, those sort of inter 
social spaces, the, the places between us, but our relational connections, that a true artist being able to understand that is something like maybe a divinity having a bit of a consciousness of the species at any moment and what it needs and what its relationship is to its existence and mm. things like this, that that then kind of extracts into that where he, for him, a divinity is a short-lived phenomenon, but it is something which serves the species. It's that the species can actually agree upon a need, a very mm. strong, coherent need. And in needing that, it puts down for itself something like a religion. So this gets back to our usefulness discussion earlier, right. that it says, this is needed now. And when it says that, and that is understood by enough around, you know, that there's as though one neuron lights up an entire web for the species, that that brings about this type of a divine agreement. And that that may actually be, at least from his perspective, what divinity or what a, a creator, what a god might actually be, is that type of a, right. an interconnection phenomena that sometimes is needed for millennia, sometimes is needed for centuries. Right. You know, it, it's definitely not something that's needed for a day. It's, you know, it's, it's on right. a different order of magnitude. The, what you were saying earlier about the um, kind of the seeing a, a divinity interacting with a species at a point I can see as an interpretation of the Bible that allows it to be far more liberal mm -hmm. in, in the classical interpretation of liberal, yeah. I think. Uh, in that, you know, in the Old Testament, God wasn't calling out people for having, you know, supposedly King David was a manifestation of God's own character or whatever, mm -hmm. and had, like, how many wives and killed how many people. Yeah, right. But the divine didn't come down and say, hey, you got to let all those other wives go right. because this is the ultimate mm -hmm. way to live and you will do that. Now, was it possible that there is a God, something like that, and it said, this is where you're at mm -hmm. with your development right now, mm -hmm. and we're going to focus on the principles that are most uh, effective for you at this time. Mm -hmm. Right now with how... Um, you know, harsh your whole environment and everything is, mm -hmm. and given your society, uh, you know, the the dominant ones are going to be the ones that are, you know, initially physically able, mm -hmm. and then from that base of being physically able, it expands out into, you know, uh, then becoming someone who's physically able because of their initial ability and then gathering more and more around them mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. they becomes the one they become the ones that can protect so leader more. Or figurehead type? Yeah, yeah they become the ones that can protect more and more individuals mm -hmm. so naturally that person has more and more wives produces more and more children and, yeah. and so i'm not in any way saying that's how that was okay or how society should eternally be but sure. maybe that's where they were at in their society at that point and that's why if there is a god it didn't step in at that point and say women need to have autonomy and not be concubines and one of 300 wives mm. you know i can see that as a liberal interpretation of of the bible and that's more so where i'm at um as far as this uh idea of God meeting needs at the time in, yeah. in, in that society. And I think we're in, as you're saying, that 
drastic the uh, inflection point, if that's the right word, where we have information at our fingertips like never before. Yeah. We have data like never before, and information is a, a, an, another form of something that that it's another entity in itself. I'm doing a bad uh, example of describing this, but I've heard people talk about it where you have, you know, matter, um, and laws and all these things. Mm. But then another thing you have is information Mm -hmm. that, that is neither, uh, it, it can never be destroyed. It is information that is outside of anything able to be destroyed. Really? I mean, the record of it, can be destroyed but the information is there like yeah. we hold information in our dna yeah you know? it's interesting how this works because that's basically you know plato's claim was that there are these infinite forms i mean it's claiming that there's this knowledge i mean because um socrates question in the mino is when you learn something are you really re- learning it or are you recollecting it hmm. like i mean because the, there was a real question so that that's actually the next thing that i want to mention because i sure. i I, after St. John's, ended up contacting more of the Eastern tradition through a variety of ways, you know, through, you know, knowing some Buddhists and knowing some folks, you know, Hindus and knowing some Sufis and, you know, lots of different traditions that were more reincarnation oriented. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have at that time a personal experience of it, although I had had kind of an out of body experience when I was a young child that I never knew how to rectify with anything. And I tried to speak to my parents about it. They didn't know how to process it, nothing. Mm-hmm. So it had always been kind of this lingering thing in the background. Walk, walk me through that. I mean, I'm, I imagine that'd be very interesting to hear about and for people listening, if you're comfortable talking yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was just basically, I was sitting with some cousins and you know we were all watching kind of cartoons or something. And for some reason, you know, I was staring at, you know, kind of knick-knacky things that were on the TV entertainment center back in that day. And, and as I was just kind of looking around, all of a sudden, I wasn't there, like, being a kid. It's like I was in, I just, my experience was that I was just floating in darkness and that I was looking down on the life that I was in, even at age four, like, having, hmm. you know, parents and grandparents and great-granduncles and all these different roles and things that were around me. Um, I wasn't those. I was outside of those. I was in just kind of a, you know, a dark, floating, comfortable space that was independent. And yeah, I mean, to this day, I, I don't know how to describe it because that's one thing, right? That's interesting where we've made this clear dichotomy between consciousness and experience. Consciousness has as a framework language, you know, you know, extensively, right? It has processing and an attempt at translating thought, which is something like language, right? And similarly, though, with experience, we try to apply language to it. But language is more of a friend of, of, of the analytical mind and not, per se, of the experiential mind. Sure. There are a lot of things that really elude clear explanation um, in terms of our experience. So right. this is one where I'm trying to give you the words for this, but it's not something that is an easy concept to pass over because it's an experience. Right, and you can, you can iterate that by the, uh, you know, how languages will have a word that describes what we can only describe in English with, you know, a paragraph. They'll mm-hmm. have a single word that yeah. everyone just gets. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one thing that was interesting about my best friend at St. John's, um, who I could, w- w- you know, we could call each other up and we could say something like, oh, yeah, it's just like the logos of that. Yeah, right. Ancient Greek word that means if you look it up in the dictionary, it's got 25 or 30 different definitions. I mean, it can mean the word, it can mean the idea, it can mean, and that's to some degree what we meant is kind of a, 
a total comprehension of a thing, a total understanding, explanation, mm. meaning, mm. idea. Essence of something. Yeah. I mean, we meant it in all of those ways that if right. I'm saying like, well, I'm imparting a logos of this to you, it would mean I'm imparting a full education of this thing to you or something like that, a full right. comprehension of it. Um, but we, you know, we had a certain shorthand, you know, after having studied these ideas together, but it's, again, it's because language will lend itself to ideas versus, you know, it really struggles at lending itself to experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so at any rate, um, I experienced, you know, started experiencing some of these religions through meditation, um, through practice, um, that led me to start asking questions about, well, wait a minute what if reincarnation, you know, what does that, what does that mean? What does that do? Mm -hmm. Because that's the other thing that's interesting. You know, if you were looking back with a, you know, a mature postmodern historical concept is that this business about monotheism is a very new phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. The species for however long we existed up until again, about 2000 years ago, roughly speaking, um, was a, a reincarnation believing, um, meditating, uh, non-conscious um, thought piling up, um, sort of, that's the type of species yeah. we were. Yeah. And so in these last 2,000 years, you know, we've developed this uh, monotheistic, uh, there's only one God and, you know, you go to heaven or hell or whatever type of a thing. Well, that wasn't there, you know, a long time ago, you know, and, and really forever before that, as far as we know. So, what, what's the difference? You know, I, I, just from a pure outsider analytical perspective, you know, I asked the question, well, are there benefits to one versus the other? Are there consequences of one versus another? You know, try to really put myself inside of that. Like, well, if there is reincarnation, oh, wait a minute. You know, I, I came to this conclusion for myself was, that's actually really relaxing. Yeah. Because yeah. I just know that I'm going to get a chance to be another kid again someday. And right. I can do the or, whole thing all over again. Well, it, to me, it's interesting. Like reincarnation does the same thing as uh, the Christian version of there being a God in heaven. So if you're a Christian, you believe that there's an afterlife. And great, you're going to do that. Whereas if you're in... I don't know if they do believe this or not in the Hindu traditions. If you're a bad person, you get reincarnated lower on the chain and like you're a bug. Hmm. But if you're great, you know, you move up to cow, eagle, human, whatever, and then higher in the social class. It seems like there's combined within it, there's this soothing for uh, what comes after death. And then also this motivation to be a better person. Yeah, Common that, in both religions. That's well... Where I got with it actually is that I actually a part of me wishes everybody right now was um, was a Buddhist in a sense or, or believed in reincarnation because the consequence of that would be I'm not going to pollute this planet right I'm going to be alive again this is going to be around why would I want to do that I'm right. not going to destroy things I'm not going to you know create to social you know excuse me contribute to social ills I'm not going to do all these terrible things. I'm going to try and make the world better like all the time because I'm going to live in it. I'm not going right. to take away children's rights. I'm not, you know, make your list. It's immense. Mm -hmm. Now, but I would argue that, I mean, a Christian point of view does the same thing, but it's how some of these people distort it. Like some people are like, well, the whole thing is going to burn. What's it matter? And then some people are like, this is a gift from, you know, the one true God, mm. and he's going to come back and we're going to say we've ruined this thing. So it... It seems like the same thing is there, but it's in a tired, for, for people like you and I, 
you know, it, we know too much about what these Christian religions can become. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, instead of seeing uh, the potential beauty in them, you just see all the baggage. And to me, I look at a religion like Hindu or Buddhism, and I can take the beautiful parts of it, and I don't, I don't have to be saddled with the baggage. Yeah. But when you talk about the beautiful parts of Buddhism and Hinduism and everything else, I, I connect with those, and I see that's great. But I know through my own experience that I... I have these processes of gaining baggage and releasing baggage mm. and that those same processes are involved in other religions as well. Mm. We interviewed a Buddhist uh, priest out in California mm -hmm. and it was really interesting because his congregation, if you want to call him that, sure. they did a westernized form, but this was a Japanese uh, form of Buddhism that had been, you know, slightly westernized. Mm -hmm. And so they, they went to a temple every Sunday mm -hmm. and uh, you know, he was like, it's really great to talk to people who care to hear about this mm. inferring like his normal congregation is just like, whatever, you know, they had taken Buddhism and turned mm. it into this thing yeah. that to them really, it was the same thing Something that people that are going through the motions. Yeah. That, yeah. that people are tired of Christianity. They were tired of Buddhism. Right. I didn't want to hear it. And yeah. maybe they're like having a conversation right now, like this Christianity thing, you know? Yeah. So it, I don't know what to do with that. Well, I think the conclusion that I came to, though, was I, I when I looked back at Christianity from this point of view of putting myself into this other um, worldview, was that I felt as though Christianity was kind of an evolution in social control. That's that was sort of a con I can definitely that I, came to. I can definitely paint it into because, that corner as well. Uh, you know, I'm encouraged to be fearful of something. You're not really encouraged to be fearful of too much, except for. Um, there being a dharmic component, but you know what the dharma in Buddhism, yeah, you know what the karmic component is. It's just that you're going to encounter some sort of a suffering and kind of have to pay a due. It's not like this is a forever thing. Well, uh, um, I, I really appreciate Buddhism in that it it's it's a very honest take on reality, mm -hmm. and it doesn't really profess any supernatural dogma or anything else as much as it's just like here's a reality. Yeah. It's suffering, and you're going to get you know and. There, well, there's a lot of honesty. Yeah, in it. it's it's that there is suffering, and and to some degree that suffering is a is a lesson giving. I mean, yeah. that, that's an important component of that. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm not a professed Buddhist. It's just that you know I studied it, and there are some component parts that hold together. Um, so for me, it was sort of like if I'm afraid of a one God, if I'm afraid of eternal suffering. It first of all, if I believe I only live one life and that's it. Um, then I'm very tractable at that point, you know, tractable. just about, I'm, I'm, it's very likely someone can tell me to do just about anything or they'll kill me and I'll do, do it hmm. versus, uh, I'm much more likely to be disobedient if I don't feel like this life is particularly the end of it, right. you know? Right. Um, so some of those things, you know, came up and then, and I hmm. did actually have another experience. So, so after I experienced that, I graduated from St. John's finally in 2008 um, I had an opportunity for my career to go to Europe and uh, work in some cheese caves, which was cool, and I worked on some novels and all that thing. But then I set aside a month where I wanted to go to Greece after having had a friend who was very strongly with Eastern religion. Um, he had mentioned to me, well, these big cities of antiquity, they may actually hold memories for us. So it's kind of an interesting thing to try and travel to those because if you were alive in that day and age, then you may kind of bump into some old memories from that this area. point of view of reincarnation. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. So I was just kind of curious with that and, and wanted to see Greece anyway, especially since I had studied so much of it at St. John's. So I went to Athens 
And, you know, there's several key places I wanted to see. I wanted to see the Oracle. I wanted to see, you know, a couple of the islands and so on and so forth. So one of the places, though, of course, was seeing the Acropolis and seeing, you know, the Parthenon and all the surviving pieces. And I was sitting in the amphitheater of Dionysus, uh, which is, uh, if you're kind of looking up at it from the museum is kind of over here-ish, uh, Acropolis is up above, the theater of Dionysus is kind of at the foot of the Acropolis. Um, there are two amphitheaters. One is more on the crawl up to the top. That one's been really redone and had been at that point. Uh, the theater of Dionysus was, they were just beginning to work on it. I don't know if it's been finished at this point or not. I haven't mm. kept up with it, but at any rate, I'm sitting there and I'm really struck by several things that are apparent in the, the Greek mentality, which some of them had escaped me in my study, you know, of Plato and Aristotle, because at St. John's, you don't read someone's supplemental texts about anything. You're just reading the pure text and no historical commentary. Um, and you're not particularly studying the myths or anything else. If they appear in Homer, then you understand them, but you don't read Edith Hamilton's mythology while you're there. Right. So at any rate, I'm sitting here in the theater, and one of the things that's mentioned in their little, you know, little one page pamphlet that's translated into 25 languages right. um, is, you know, notice that underneath the stage here of this theater, there were sculpted men that were holding the stage up on their shoulders. And the reason for that was that the Greeks had a very clear notion of, of a pathway, that they were standing on the shoulders of those who had come before them always. Mm. There's a very clear mm. notion to that, and especially in the Attic Greeks. Yeah that they knew that the Mycenaeans had come before them. They knew that the, you know, all of these other, um, you know, even earlier Greeks had been there and had created so much knowledge for them to benefit from. And so for them, they didn't believe themselves like, well, we're creating this art. We're creating this drama. No, they said, we're just simply the newest humans, you know, that are fortunate right. enough to be in this position to do this. So that really was just hitting me really hard sitting there in antiquity. And all of a sudden, I had another, like, another out-of-body experience while I was sitting there. So cartoons in antiquity, that's your deal. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some, somebody will have to write something about that someday. Right. Um, so, you know, but in this one, I was actually back there. Walking in, around in ancient Greece. Where you were at, with but friends. in ancient time. Yeah, climbing up to the Acropolis with friends, going to see a show. It's like, you know, it was Friday night and we were all gussied up and we were going out to see the new production of whatever. Right. But the strange thing about this particular out-of-body experience was that it actually had emotional content, which I don't know how to explain. Hmm. In terms of there was a feeling of togetherness with the people that I was with in this experience that... It was of such a feeling of fraternity mm. and being banded together and accomplishing something together right. that when the memory kind of, you know, fractions of seconds, right, that all of this kind of played out and then boom, I'm back there sitting there as an American again. Right. The, the disparity between that feeling of connection uh -huh. in the memory and being an American again where right. we're individuals and we're uh, all yeah, of these yeah, other yeah, things yeah. it hurt yeah it literally hurt which so i don't know how to explain that in a conventional scientific mm. pseudoscientific or whatever right. schema um but i just started weeping like sitting mm. right there in that amphitheater wow. of dionysus because it was so strong to me well you know i think our our freedom to be or our drive 
in America to be these heightened individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it comes at a cost of separating from achieving things and having that sense of community together. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the way we spend our money, allocate our government funds and everything else, mm-hmm. we shy away from um, public art mm-hmm. even as much as a European nation would. And on your way out, there's a really cool piece of public art that someone did over here. And mm-hmm. just even seeing that, there's a level in me of mm-hmm. like this reaction of, Ooh, a little teared up, yeah. like yeah. And like you're saying, um, yeah. This existing as a a, a highly solo individualistic American, yeah. Yeah. which which I am, and I struggle with, like we were just talking about with these group dynamics. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between group dynamics and then this idea of camaraderie mm-hmm. and achieving something together. Like yeah. I'm highly individualistic, but I total like your experience of what you're talking about i get that like being a part of something bigger is is very important well it's interesting that you say that you are though right because your chosen profession from at least what i've gathered is of being an artist and to a degree an yeah, artist yeah. doesn't exist without an audience at least to my knowledge I mean, well, at least they don't materially, that's for sure. But I would argue that they probably don't because they also don't uh, conceptually because you're interacting with something and the point of it is to make a representation of some sort, you know, whichever media you're in or whatever. Right. Yeah, totally. Like what we're doing here, I'm doing for my own benefit Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm sharing it because I think these kind of things are very valuable. And this is what I find of the most value that I can give to a community. And now our community is the world Mm -hmm. because what we're doing here in Bitterford, Maine can be viewed in India as soon as we post it, which is crazy. But yeah, the way in which we, interact and contribute Uh, a good friend of mine always says like he'll describe certain people of our friend group as being these different parts of the military Mm -hmm. and he's like yeah all day long you're a sniper out there on your own Mm -hmm. that's just you you know and and i get that uh but you're you're doing it for a greater cause and and you're you're yeah It's, it's interesting he chooses that analogy though right because a sniper is hugely dependent oh, yeah. on the intel that they receive, uh, on regular updates. I mean, they do have to go into a period of radio silence, and so I can see the analogy that he's going for. I get that. Right, but, but in the doing and You're existing, also dependent upon in you, an incredible oh, yeah. way. So do you feel that responsibility? Like, is that there that drives you that your observation is being served up to the group. You've been given this privileged position Mm -hmm. of being allowed to be an observer. You don't have to dig the ditches. You're allowed to be the observer and then report back. Right. And that's an incredible responsibility to the species that you're in, in this role. Well, see, my, the reason why I'm doing this to a large degree is that I, I do think, and I think I, talked a little bit about this earlier but i do think when you come to a time of being able to look critically at what gives you comfort that Mm. you should because you might have developed things in that process of belief and valuing and everything else that could have negative aspects to it that need to be weeded out Mm. and so i am at a place where 
my morals are formed. I mean, I don't, I don't even drink. I don't at this point have a God said thou shall not drink sure. approach as much as I'm cheap. And I don't think anyone's ever said, man, my life's better now that I started drinking. Mm. So like I was raised that way, but I'm still adhering to it to a large degree just because I do see value in avoiding it. Yeah. I don't see it as a sin, yeah. but for me, and especially the comfort of my wife, who still sees it as right. that way, yeah. is there. And so, like, I've got my whole moral setup and everything else, but what I did see not adding up in my life experience was the way that the people I associated with and their beliefs approached uh, people that were homosexual. That was the whole initial thing for sure. me that was like, this doesn't add up because... Yeah. Everyone I've gotten close to that is gay, and I talk to them about when did you realize you were gay? It's just when right. they when they went through puberty and discovered what they were attracted to. Yeah, and knowing kids that were gay growing up that were nicer kids than me or any of the other heterosexual, yeah. you know, uh, testosterone filled little jerks. Yeah, right. Yeah, and to me that there was uh, some cognitive dissonance there as far as we can't tell these people that they're outside of the will of God when it's not something that they chose. Right. They're saddled with it, and it doesn't add up. And so that, to me, yeah. then led into an investigation of everything that now, you know, has been a, a detriment to myself and my family in some ways. Yeah. But overall, it's, it's something that I have to go through. I have to examine what I believe, when I'm capable of doing it. And I, I think it's I think it's a calling that anyone that's in that position, it is something that they should do. Examine, do maintenance. You're at a time when you can do that. You better do yeah. it. Yeah, my friend and I, um, you know, we always referred to that, what you're describing to some degree is the tepid bath phenomenon, which is just that, you know, you're in this bath right now that feels comfortable for whatever reason, mm -hmm. and uh, it's preventing you from putting your foot on the cold tiles on the outside. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a gross oversimplification, no, but it's it warm encapsulates. enough for me. I'm staying in here. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And to me, I was looking out of that bath, and there was people that were shivering without a towel standing on cold tile yeah and everyone in the bath was telling me no that's you know they you know they're they're welcome to come in if they you know but they can't yeah. and to me it's just leaving people out in the cold and yeah see that's that the cold and warm thing is also particularly powerful it, it's featured very prominently in a lot of Nietzsche's stuff, which is very interesting. He refers to, you know, being a mountain walker, going to where it's coldest, always striving to be in the cold at all times and stealing yourself to realizing that that's where life is. I mean, following this analogy, it's really interesting. I have to live in Maine, which is like, I often wonder, like, is it mosquitoes, the yeah. cold? The, yeah, but, well, not, I mean... I'm sure not just literally. I mean, although there's certainly benefit to that, but I mean, no, but there's there's a underlying psychology of why, like, yeah. I I chose to live in a down and out town when I moved here. Yeah, in a state that's not great financially. Yeah, in a climate that is cold a lot of the year. Like, there's a lot of things I've chosen to put myself in the position of that are. Yeah. Uh, farther from curated reality that a lot of people want to experience. Right. Yeah. But I, by choice, have been put myself here for some reason. Yeah. You know, so. Um, so, 
trying to think of where we where we sort of jumped off from. So uh, you were you were in the theater of Dionysus out of body experience. Yeah, that, I mean that was kind of part of a part of an explanation, though I guess. Well, so it was kind of wandering around in um, you know what is what does a reality look like to someone who believes in a faith of reincarnation mm-hmm. versus a faith of Christianity. Um, because to me, it's it's very informative. I mean, I I have discussions with lots of friends who are pure scientists, and you know, for me, I you know, I don't talk to them about out of body experiences because it's just they don't know what to do with it. You know, yeah. maybe you had that experience, but it's not objectively provable. So, what in the hell does that do for a meaningful discussion about what we can do for everybody? Type of stuff. Right. Um, but for them, even with one one of them, I said, well, well, look. You know, it would actually be better for the species if we went back to reinc- a reincarnation concept, right? And I explain what I yeah, explained to you yeah. earlier, and and they begrudgingly will say, "Oh shit, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, I mean, if we wouldn't be that way, yeah. burning the forests. We wouldn't be, you know, allowing uh, unbridled capitalism to destroy everything. We, you know, we right, wouldn't right. be yeah, we, o- okay with that. We wouldn't have the factory farming. We wouldn't, yeah, yeah, yeah." It, I have this jumbotron analogy that I use that, you know, if you stand an inch from a jumbotron, you'll get the material truth of the red, green, blue RGB yeah. dots. And yep. that, that's, but if you stand back 300 feet, you'll get the big picture. Hmm. But I think a materialist point of view allows you to maybe to too much of a large degree manipulate reality and, create more of what you want than the beauty of what naturally happens. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that I think that it does lead to a little bit more of a tepid bath thing, right? Because if you're um, if you're piling up, you know, that consciousness model we were discussing earlier, if you're if you're advocating consistently that I'm just going to keep taking all these thoughts that come into my forest clearing or my Times Square clearing, I'm going to take those, I'm going to pile them all up around and I'm going to keep getting more and more power. Well, what am I going to use that power for? I'm going to always use it to make myself more comfortable. Yeah. I mean, I don't know many people that are in these hyper scientific approaches that aren't like, well, I'm going to completely wire my life. I'm going to have a computer. I'm going to be able to call Uber Eats. I'm going to be able to do this and that and the other thing. And it's only after the fact by people who are very impassioned who are like you know what do you know where your food is coming from it's actually really important and then those people finally go oh you mean just ordering my dominoes that's like really convenient or something that might not be the best thing for the planet oh because they won't come to that conclusion themselves when they're hyper wired in like that well unless their math tells them that eventually whoa this whole thing's going to run out yeah and then it pushes back on their exist and as humans we just do not change until we're staring death in the face unfortunately well i mean that leads to you know an interesting question in terms of you know are we uh, as a species or maybe even just more specific than a species are we as an american example of a species where we're kind of set up on this certain track line now right where we're supposed to be getting a certain type of education between years x and x and then we get a different type of education which we have some choice over between x and x and then maybe we want further education but but after the education points over and now we're you know full on into career phase and family phase and so on and so forth does there remain any reflexive possibility? Can we still change ourselves? Can we still learn the new? What's our personal internal drive to continue seeking, continue asking? Um, Or at a certain point, do we pass kind of a lip of a threshold where we kind of say to ourselves, 
now we're just going to kind of be in habit mode because oh, yeah. that's really what like you know the later some of the later writers like say Camus I mean his book The Plague I mean basically posits that as a, an underlying theory but then it writes a fictional example on top of it that the plague of modern man is habit yeah yeah succinctly he says now I've had an interesting relation or realization of of how much habit has comforted me mm-hmm. so kept we, you in the type of bath right well so we lived in a house right over there for mm-hmm. like 13 years mm-hmm. and I had a really big hill that I could run up and down mm-hmm. and I had my little calisthenic workout routine yep. Yep. and I'd look at people who were out of shape or, you know, and, and, you know, I'd, I'd say, how can you not, you know, sure. be in shape and blah, blah, blah. Sure. And then we moved and we moved and we moved again, like four times in a year because we were transferring from selling that house to where we had to go in the meanwhile until our house that we live in now was built mm-hmm. man it was so hard to actually stay on any kind of schedule of exercise or anything sure. else yeah yeah because we were in these different locations and all, all my habits had been taken from me right. and i had been sitting there thinking look at me you know i can do i yeah blah blah yeah and just that little simple thing sure. i still had hills i could run up but right. you know it was like i was in a new place i had to get set up and it made me just realize that for one, I hope I'm not getting worse and worse just with age of depending on uh, habits and consistency. Mm-hmm. I hope I can stay flexible sure. mentally. And I always have tried to strive for ongoing new experiences that keep me from yeah. getting into that. But maybe there's some degree of your existence that you do need to put into that. Cause like right now I'm also experiencing, like I've, I've experienced 40 years of life having all the answers. Mm-hmm. And I mean, all the answers mm-hmm. supposedly. Yeah. And now everything I encounter, I have to use my energy to process. And that's a really expensive thing to run all the time. Mm. And not having those answers, having to go through a different process is, it's invigorating and it's interesting. And I do actually feel that I did get to a point previously where I was like, either I need to actually start to process this and reconsider it, or I need to just walk away and not care. Yeah. And not caring is usually not that good of an option for me. Yeah, see, I mean, that's another thing that, <clears throat> another little thing that I got from St. John's was real strong. It was a reading of uh, Swift's Gulliver's Travels, which, you know, it can be simply boiled down to like, oh, it's this guy is traveling and he found these miniature things and he found horse people. But if you really start to ask, like, you know, and, and this is kind of a St. John's orientation thing of, Asking a simple question and really trying to find the substantial answer that's there. Asking a question of what does it mean to travel? What does Swift show us about what it means to travel? And asking that question for me had a very profound result. I mean, what I discovered that Swift was saying was it means to step away from your current life and what all of that means. What does that mean? Step away from your life. All of your patterned habits of survival you step away from all of those if you mm. really truly travel yeah you go to a brand new place where you have to figure out how to get water again you have to figure right. out how to get food again and the, and it's not just that but it's you you may have to barter you may have to exchange you may have to create new fraternities you may have to create new families and neighborhoods and all of these things that we have already sort of calcified in the ways that we live now right that when you travel you have to do that all over again. But the finished part of traveling is 
you have to return home. Right. Because you've created a new being when you traveled, if you really properly traveled, not what people call traveling today. Like yeah. Traveling today is... It's, it's, There's it's aspects touring. of it, but it's... yeah. Well, generally speaking, you're staying in a hotel, which is very Americanized or Westernized or whatever. Right. So you're not worried about your, you know, your bed being leaked on. You don't have to build yourself a shelter. I mean, so, I mean, you're taking immense shortcuts, you know, yeah. in terms of proper traveling survival. But at any rate, I mean, if you properly travel, then you've gone away, you've created a new being, which is exactly what Gulliver became in every single one of these travels. Right. And then he had to return home. And that conflict when you return home is unbelievably challenging mm. because you have two beings now trying to become one again. Right. How does that work? That's interesting. Yeah, I... I um, Because they don't agree. I... I had a There's friend Discord. that, yeah, uh, well, so I lived in the Marshall Islands for two years mm -hmm. as a high school teacher. Mm -hmm. A lot of commonality between the U.S. and there, just in that it's modern culture. Mm -hmm. But there's a pace of life that you acclimate to mm -hmm. that when you come back is very disorienting. Yes. Uh, but it really helps you remember that this pace of life is disorienting, mm -hmm. which is important. Um, and I had a friend that, did the entire Appalachian Trail mm -hmm. every day. He every night he'd make his camp, sleep, get mm -hmm. up the next day, and walk. And he did that for I don't know how many months yeah. and months and months and months. I've had friends that have done it too. I know. And when they come back to, you know, our reality, it's it's very discombobulating because you had such a purpose before, but it was so simple, mm -hmm. you know, and that. Like what you're saying is, is very interesting. And in my chosen profession of architectural photographer, I always knew I could never handle repetition uh, in, in, in too much of a form, mm -hmm. right? So I, I once worked in an office where I had to go there every day, and that was only for a summer. Mm -hmm. And man, I never felt so dead inside. Mm. And that was so, so difficult. And I knew I could never do anything where I had too much repetition, mm -hmm. too much consistency, because it just, it felt so dead. I needed mm -hmm. constant change mm -hmm. and constant challenge. Like what I do right now, there's no guaranteed income, but mm -hmm. some months we make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And then other months you make none. And it really, it keeps you on your toes, keeps you active. And I really find a lot of, fulfillment and motivation in that. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, that idea of traveling and experiencing different cultures really helps you see, smell, experience things differently. Like one of the most invigorating places I've been has been Morocco. And, you know, we're, I was doing surf tourism. I mm -hmm. get it. Uh, but it's just all the food, all the people, all the culture, yeah. just at that minor level. It's just so incredibly different. Yeah. It was like you took all of California and eliminated the people. It, it was very similar, a very mm -hmm. west facing coast, mm -hmm. desert inland, you know, but man, the light in the dust from the Sahara, mm -hmm. the, those, the smell of the mint tea. Uh, oh yeah. No, my know. friends were telling me about that, that have been to Morocco, that it can be 110 degrees out. And you're looking at all these people sitting outside drinking hot tea. And you think, have they lost their minds? <laughs> yeah. But then you have it and you go, like, holy cow, now that's I good. get it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll drink that in a sauna. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that idea of, of change, I don't, 
how do you avoid the one size fits all approach as well? Because there's mm. some people who are very disoriented by that kind of thing and it does not bring them, maybe it doesn't bring them comfort, but maybe yeah. if you forced them through it, they'd be better off of it. But is that what people who embrace some of these types of religion are trying to do to other people? They're trying to force yeah. them through their religion to be better people. Well, that's what I, yeah. I mean, and so that's what my point about sort of Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics is what if you repeat something over and over again, does that mm. change who you are as a being? I mean, to an extent, right? You I repeat mean, not repeating over and over and over again. Yeah, to <laughs> to well to um, to say, well, these are the actions I know I should take as a good person, so I'm going to keep doing them, and and will I gain understanding of why I should? Because to some extent, right, that's sort of the lesson of Christianity: is if you don't have love in your heart, then you follow the Ten Commandments, because that's what you mm. do. You just naturally do all those things if you actually were living as a being of love, right? Right. But since we kind of recognize that not everybody's going to be that way, we've also given you a few other guideposts along the way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's a bit of that habitual thing. Um, but part of what I thought was interesting about uh, what the attempts of some of the religious endeavors have been throughout time, because obviously there have been so many expressions of Christianity now and so many expressions of the, the other religions, is that with something like drinking, for instance, just you know, using that as an example, because mm -hmm. I know you talked about it with your wife and you brought it up today, is that I don't necessarily see drinking as an evil and I don't see intoxication as an evil um, in any way, shape, or form. But You'd have to define evil. What I, well, but well, here's what I do find to be hugely detrimental to the species, is that if it's used in the wrong way. And what I guess I'd mean by that is if it's just used habitually without intention right. because there's a way in which it could be used as a as a sacrament there's a way in which it sure. could be used as a ritual so for instance you know once a year or something like that you know it's agreed upon that we should all have some sort of an experience together right okay interesting to me i mean it but, seems like people should start to use mushrooms in that way or something well I, that's certainly what huxley advocated for in ireland his uh utopia at the end really? of his life yeah see because it a lot of he said everyone should do it once a year i i wouldn't totally disagree with that and that would vary I, I doubt many of my family members actually listen to these anymore but you know it from what people have been saying and what little research has have been done mm -hmm. these uh cybacillin type of mushrooms are very have a lasting effect mm -hmm. uh, that lasts for time on on your consciousness, on your brain that are beneficial, especially mm -hmm. to people over 25. Maybe you shouldn't be doing them before your brain is solidified. Exactly. There's arguments for that, yep. sure. But yeah, it, um, you know, I, I definitely, were, were I single and without a family, mm -hmm. I, would, I would be far more entertaining those kind of mm -hmm. things. But first and foremost is, for me at this point is, the respect and protection of my family mm -hmm. under under the guys that's that's a bad word under the original ideas of how it was formed yeah sure and that that would kind of be i know there are initial know, contracts and agreements even yeah, if they're unspoken and yes, those need to be honored yeah and that yeah. would really make my wife uncomfortable yeah um and the rest of my family so you know at this point in my life i can just write that sure. off as like well yeah. i'll listen to what other people have to say about it and right Maybe maybe I could get there through meditation, but it'll take like thirty years. So who yeah. knows? Um, Especially the research about I mean, mushrooms in general, not not exclusively psilocybin, but just mushrooms in general. The genetic research now has been really interesting in terms of we actually might share more in common with 
uh, mushrooms. Yeah, they're, they're not even a plant species. or That's an animal. Mammals. They're like kind of in between. And yeah. yeah, there's there's so many interesting things there. And, you know, the, the ideas that uh, consciousness actually resides in these microtubules yep. in the brain and that yep. there's a lot of commonality with fungi in that and how they're uh, researching and understanding consciousness is many ways by how they stop it. Mm-hmm. with just anesthesia they really don't know how it works but they know it works and they just really gently yeah. i know, mean again that's, that's th- that that to me is that interesting conundrum of we know there's a correlative phenomena there so we know that yeah i mean consciousness isn't po- consciousness seemingly isn't possible in a rock you know it doesn't seem to come from there um right. But, you know, similarly, if I turn, if I make my brain like a rock, it seems like consciousness is probably not possible in there anymore either. I mean, certainly after lobotomies, it's changed. Certainly after right. a number of these things. But our whole preconception for all of our science, all of medicine, everything is based upon the double-blind clinical trial. Right. So, I mean, we recognize that the placebo effect is actually senior to everything else. I mean, we give it right. that credence. Yeah, for something to be effective, it has to outperform the placebo effect. But there's always the placebo effect, you know, that, that, that is, well, like we a recognize 10, it could override anything. That's, That's the respect that we give to it in, in these trials. <laughs> it could override, I could give this medicine and it could completely skew my results if some individual came along and they had incredible will. I mean, we also recognize that within athletics, right? right. I mean, we know that the biggest, strongest or whatever is not always the best. We know mm. that there's something else. I mean, that's another acknowledgement to this placebo effect. We don't know how to quantify it. There's something there. There's something that uh, can be uh, extraordinary from consciousness. We don't know what it is. Right. That, and that kind of gets me to this idea of free will and determinism. Mm-hmm. Like, I see not necessarily free will and determinism as much as just will, mm-hmm. right? So I imagine... I paint the picture of free will as you're a fish in a stream going with the current with all the other fish. Mm. And each one of those fish has the ability to swim against the current, do they? Mm. Um, So in that, I would say that we do have that ability to turn and go against the current. Uh, If you choose not to, you are in a fairly deterministic pattern. You know, we're all made of matter and to Mm -hmm. a degree it's deterministic, but Mm -hmm. we are also electro chemical Mm -hmm. things which the electrons are everywhere and nowhere at once so there's that um and i there's something in there that says you have the ability to turn and go against anything else and Mm -hmm. and exert that Mm -hmm. ability of free will Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean you are exerting free will Mm -hmm. um i think there's different levels of will that people um uh manifest that that you know are capable well and is it and from a, I, mean, I, I keep trying to ask species questions because I think they're so interesting and I think they're so rarely asked, which is, is it how valuable it is, is it to us as a species that a lot of members act in a counter, counter-deterministic way? I mean, it seems like as a species, it's actually really important that we have someone who's going to go up on the mountaintop for a year and do that. And then come back and tell us. Because we need those. We need those explorers. Priests and prophets, okay? Yeah. So. Travelers, explorers, yeah. Priests are going to be the ones that maintain the law Mm. and uh, dole it out every week, Mm -hmm. right? Prophets are going to be the one who 
ones who improve upon the law. Mm. And uh, profits are going to be fewer and farther between, mm-hmm. and they're going to be far more ridiculed and beheaded. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for <laughs> sure. Well, and even right within the Bible, right, how do you identify a prophet? You stick a poisonous stake to their neck. Oh. If, they're, <laughs> if they're bitten, they are not a prophet. Oh, if the poisonous a... snake does not bite, then they're a true prophet of God. Oh, man. That's there in the, in the Bible. I mean, I'm not making that up. I read the whole thing at one point. <laughs> it's and a at shock. that point, you're like, whoa, don't yeah. want to be a prophet. This is extreme. Prophet's never accepted in his yeah. hometown either because you know all the dirt on him. So here's another, I, I assume we're probably starting to wind out. I wanted to throw a couple of mm. other little things that you might not have, um, have, have you know, picked up along the way that are interesting. Um, Nietzsche's read of Christianity overall was that there was this figure, this Christ figure, most likely, you know, of course Mm -hmm. it's one of those things where he was, everyone's a skeptic about certain things now, but there was most likely a Christ figure. And the Christ figure really was very commendable in a tremendous number of ways. Mm -hmm. I think it's hard for for most anybody to take this depiction of Christ and find fault on some level. Yeah, Monty Python doesn't even do that in the life of Brian. Yeah. They they treat the the representation of Christ with respect. Yeah. They they manifest Brian through all these idiots, mm-hmm. you know. And it's such an interesting movie. Yeah, but. it is. It is. I, I love Monty Python. Um, but uh, Nietzsche's real villain was Paul. Hmm. Okay. Because because Paul took what was being shown from someone who was the prophet, who did go away from humanity for a while, Mm -hmm. and came back and had lessons to share, and then tried to codify that and make the laws, and then basically create the priestness um, that was now being recreated from these new experiences. So it was designed to try and be this, well, let's serve humanity, but at a certain point, anything that offers a service to humanity on the flip side is also offering... A disservice. The same thing. I heard you use the I think the four I am analogy with I think it was Avi or one of the other mm. uh, people you spoke to. I mean, I always when I first was coming up as a naive person, you know, naive philosophy student before I read everything, um, was that I had heard the cogito and it was the most convincing thing to me. Like, well, I think therefore I am. How can you refute that? That's you know, blah blah. One of my you know, language tutor, my freshman year at St. John's, I said, how do you you know how do we go beyond that? Isn't that everything you know when we get to that? He goes, no. No, have you ever heard of epiphenomena? And I go, no, I don't know what that is. He goes, okay, here, here's, here's my, my hand, right? Okay, this is also my hand. This is just one epiphenomenon of my hand. So in the same way, consciousness-wise, when we say I, I is always an epiphenomena. Because, hmm. yeah, that's part of you, that's the observer, but you also have all of these other functions of your reality. Right, right. And so, no, the cogito is like not the end. Like that's that's a point. It's an interesting point. It was a good point. You know, is that what cool. they call that expression? I think the cogito ergo sum because it's Latin for I think, therefore I am. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Just shorthand. Um, yeah. So I mean, so 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 Paul was definitely you know was Nietzsche's villain. Was the guy that he wasn't the one that went out there and had those experiences because mm-hmm. that's the guy that to some degree humanity needs. He was the guy who then kind of like interpreted and, you know, had a, a way in which he set down a tradition. And it was something different that Paul did right. than what Jesus did. Those are very different activities. It was and kind of served a, humanity in very different ways. An execution and a, uh, not execution, but uh, turning it into a system of doing things mm-hmm. rather than a, an example to stand on its own for eternity. 
to a degree? I think it was the beginning of a separation, right? Because there was a way in which I think Jesus wanted to invite us in to an experience. Mm -hmm. And there was a way in which Paul kept us out of that experience. Hmm. Can you expand upon that at all? Yeah, because Paul was basically the beginning stage of creating a theology or a dogma. Okay. Which is, this is the way you need to think about it, rather than this is the way you need to experience it. Mm, and so okay. he discouraged an experience of it by encouraging a thinking of it. Right, and that's what I'm experiencing right now, personally, is far more thinking, tearing apart, intellectualizing than experiencing, and I have no... But you've been told, I mean, to some degree, what you're going through is a reaction. And, and by the way, I, you know, to some degree, commend it, I mean, because I found that at one point that a lot of my discussions about spirituality, you know, having grown up in Maine, would be talking with other people who were reacting, had a response to the Christian upbringing that they had. Mm -hmm. And so to rebel to that, to rebel from that really is not, you know, being dishonest in any way. I mean, it's feeling very uncomfortable about something that's, you're being told how to think about this thing. Right. And you're finding that there's inconsistencies and they drive you wild. I mean, they drove me wild. They drove me away. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, I certainly understand that and have a lot of compassion for that, for sure. Well, I'm, I'm at the point of, I think I've done enough at this point, a fair amount of due diligence to intellectualizing it, which is uh, called for and appropriate. Mm. Um, but now I need to figure out how to experience the, the potential of what mm. could be there mm -hmm. without allowing myself to be misled by my own uh, biases and yeah. desires. Yeah. So that's hard. Well, part of the reason why I brought him actually is because for me, he was my dog I'm pointing to is, was part of a gateway uh, for me of like my heart. I, I was, as you can tell, an, a hyper intellectual person mm -hmm. uh, for the majority of the beginning of my life. And, He's my first dog that I've owned. My family had dogs. And so there was always this, well, you know, there's the dog over there or whatever. But he and I went out to Santa Fe together. We went out to Colorado together. We hiked mountains together. And having a dog as your only companion, there's a certain type of bonding that happens if you're open to it, just in terms of, a, you know, realizing that they're looking at you all the time. I mean, they're like, they're these beings that they are like... seek eye contact. Yeah. That are like, like what's no other next? animal. What are we doing? Is it okay to rest now? You know, and they're looking for direction all the time. They're, you know, they're so dependent on you in this way. And maybe you've experienced this through fatherhood and some other things. I've never had that part of my life. I don't know. But for me, this guy actually started my thinking from being just a pure, uh, emotionally devoid, analytical potentiality right. thing to something where I'm actually starting, you know, I'm regularly processing things more in a kind of heart-centered way. Mm. Um, and so then that led me, I think, to start working with my mom's uh, cousins who, um, so they're sort of in their early 60s, my mom's age 66. Um, so they're a little bit younger than her. Um, so cousin wants to remove whatever it is. I mean, they're my cousins too, but I never know how to express that anymore. Um, so they're working with... Um, PTSD veterans and shelter animals. And the way that they do it is uh, just taking a simple shelter dog, uh, getting uh, you know, a number of veterans that have been really suffering and they're trying to uh, solve the problem you know, non-medically now at this point because they just feel like they're at the end of it with that. The medicines aren't helping. The drinking's not helping. Nothing's helping. Like, how do I deal with this? And their methods are very simple. And it's showing, showing the veteran that the dog is a mirror, perfect mirror 
for them. That's always giving back what's being shown. Yeah. And you know, they, any behavior changes in the dog, it's usually because the veteran is behavior changed towards them. And so that simple activity of being able to show that so clearly is actually affecting unbelievable change in the veterans that she's working with. Hmm. Whereas if you, because they actually care about the animal. Right. Versus you take the same veteran, you have them in a psychiatrist chair, talk to the psychiatrist, even if the psychiatrist is able to clearly indicate to them, this is what's going on with you. Right. They don't care about themselves enough at this point. Hmm. That's interesting. But do care about the animal. Will change for the sake of the animal. Will not change for the sake of themselves. Right. Very strange thing. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's it's, kind of like a religion in that uh, a person is going to have... uh, less baggage towards this animal than they do towards themselves, just as you know, you or I could have less baggage towards Christianity and have more uh, gravity towards you know Buddhism or mm. whatever else. And in the same way, you know, a healthy person could have that uh, gravity towards the relationship and learning and other people. Were they able to understand? that relationship like you're describing mm. you know with a with a dog you can not like you're not human i don't have to have or project all my insecurities onto you because you're a dog mm. all you do is look at me and, and accept me mm-hmm. you know and if all we can do is look and look at other people and love and accept them you know metaphorically mm-hmm. things are gonna that's gonna help people a lot and yeah. that's what i keep coming back to is the core of christianity that i do not reject is just to exist with people to to love and accept them Mm kind of like a dog Mm -hmm. you know a a nice dog yeah (laughs) so well i'd say so the final thing that i guess i just want to to bring around to because i guess it's it's sort of where i'm where i'm coming into now um, after having gone through some of this progression which I, i think i've laid out in maybe more of an aphoristic way than a simple expression way just sort of the experiences i had chained together right but now um, I started receiving, uh, well, I've had massage therapy a lot of my life cause a lot of it, I was doing high end restaurant stuff. And mm-hmm. so that's, you know, walking miles every night and yeah. your back gets out of whack sometimes what or whatever. What shoes did you wear? Um, I was using, um, uh, echoes, which Echo. have great insoles, the Swedish, Swedish finish. I can't remember. They're one of yep. the Nordic countries. Yep. Great brand. Um, but I definitely needed just as a kind of, um, what's it called? Uh, a proactive, uh, you know, preventative, uh, you know, something. And so massage worked very well for me. It was just kind of like, great. Your muscle tissues have just gotten kind of a little stressed out. Just work on them a little bit. Hey, great. I'm good as new, you know, right back at it. You know, never really been sick, no major injuries, all that kind of thing. Um, but at any rate, um, I had never experienced, um, acupuncture before. And I actually met somebody who was really swearing up and down about it and how great it was for various things and whatnot. So I said, well, what the heck? I'm, I've always been an, uh, an experimenter, you know, always willing to try something if somebody mm-hmm. recommends something. So started trying that and a group, there's a kind of a meditation group affiliated with the acupuncture that I started receiving, um, which, you know, I've always been, always done a bit of meditation on my own from even my teenage years. I experienced, um, you know, one like rudimentary style of meditation where it was any thought that comes into your head, like feed it into a flame and then just keep feeding everything that comes. The flame gets bigger and bigger and bigger, but you're still stoking it. All these thoughts, just burn them, burn them, burn them, burn them. Okay. And then once everything stops coming, extinguish the flame. And you have this moment of like, whew. Hmm. 
real peace. I mean, that's very similar to a lot of kind of Zen techniques. A number of them are like that, like just, yeah. dis, you know, throw thoughts away. The thought, uh, the meditative practice this group uses is actually um, sinking any thoughts that come into your heart and drown them in love. That's the um, language that they use. Mm. which is very interesting and I decided to try and use it and for me that didn't come naturally at all it was kind of, it was a real mental exercise like I described you know going through some of Einstein's mental thoughts about like I'm riding on a surfboard at the speed of light what do I see you know like because those are some of his funky thoughts or riding on a train was his thing right um so I had to use this guy as kind of a vehicle for me. I mean, picturing him and picturing the way that I feel about him as just my best buddy companion. And um, it helped me to understand how to do that, how to sink these thoughts into love and understanding what that means. But one of the things that came from this school of acupuncture that I see is a Taoist based. So it's really about balance. It's not about some sort of westernized you know, we're going to specifically try and cure this thing. It's no, your energies are just kind of leaning out over here or out. You're going mm. one way or the other. It's a very, the yin yang thing, right? They're seeking balance. Yeah. yeah. And so that's where I think, uh, I think I've come to that um, point now is feeling like I, I'm not a dedicated, devout Taoist or something. That's not where I've arrived, but I've arrived at seeing that there's incredible virtue and balance oh yes i uh, me as well i i i think i'm still much further back in the process but mm. that's the thing i keep coming back to is that there really is no uh there there really is no good and evil in my opinion as much as there's imbalance mm -hmm. there's imbalance in one direction yeah there in the same thing that mm -hmm. can be perceived as evil can be perceived as good Cobra venom can do a lot of good in the right balance. Right. And in anything you can see that you would frame as bad can be good were it imbalanced yeah. to a lot many times. So, yeah. you know, the imbalance of sexual ethics mm -hmm. were, were it to be pedophilia, mm -hmm. imbalance is, you know, between two consenting adults, yes. you know. And because when you start to paint the picture of like there will be heaven and everything will be perfection mm -hmm. i i have a really hard time imagining something like that but i can imagine balance mm -hmm. you know because the real most rewarding times in life are the times that i find balance and i can be present like mm -hmm. i've i've done the work i've done the i've done the exercise i've done the work and i can be present and balanced for this relational interaction. Yeah. Those are really nice moments where there's some kind of peace and, and everything that comes out of that. But. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely agree that I, I find the expression of that when I explore that through my life. I mean, all of these different, you know, again, we use these, um, these sort of vignettes, you know, through our conversation. I mean, I mentioned a number of these examples of different things. I mean, if I look at, um, riding in the car, for instance, and being in a state of road rage, I recognize, mm -hmm. whoa, there's balance there that's out. Yeah. If I'm thinking about um, why would, uh, you know, Aristotle describe this thing in the Nicomachean Ethics this way of like, oh, well, you just have something repeat something. What is that? Well, oh, it means that one natural tendency of human beings is just to live in such a way that they end up incredibly unbalanced. And so by keeping them in this kind of middle space of repeating certain things that we know that that will keep them away from an extreme right. unbalanced approach to something. Right. These repetitions are aiming at keeping us in balance. Yeah.
I mean, similarly, I mean, if you're sitting in the tepid water, though, that, and then that's kind of maybe one of the interesting things is the tepid bath actually is much more likely to, to take us out of balance than to go back in. Because yeah. something that we feel comfortable towards, we're going to gravitate towards. It's almost like a hypnosis. And I think oh, that's yeah. what Camus was suggesting is that, you know, this thing that we're experiencing, this habit phenomena now that's becoming so predominant, in part, it's a reaction to, you know, I think you were talking about it, the return from the Marshall Islands and your particular experience. I mean, I did an Outward Bound course, you know, which was much shorter duration, but I had a similar experience where I was used to things moving 10 miles an hour or less. For me to all of a sudden walk back into Rockland, Maine, get off the boat and I see a car moving 30 or 40, I was like, holy cow, what is going, you know, but then to get used to that, because I mean, I've read, you know, a number of things about like what petro reality is like, because this is a reality which is completely different from the rest of the species. What reality? Well, since we're all fueled down, oh, have yeah. the, we have the potential power at our disposal at all times of this vehicle which mo can move at an incredible speed relative yep. to what our bodies could do naturally right. that we now have to um, be in a constant relation to a person who's potentially more optimized than us at any given point in time and we can't fall too far behind them mm. that's what the economic system that's been framed by the petrodollar is is in terms of having an effect on us right is that there's a huge potential out there and if you're the type of person that's just going to sit on the street corner and be begging for scraps or whatever you're not uh optimized uh to be a human being in a petro reality right you know but I mean, who is? I mean, the species is not designed that way. There are outliers who are obviously very adept at it and jump right in with both hands and they're able to curtail anything else that comes in their life or staunch it enough or whatever mm. so they can keep operating at that speed. But is that natural? I mean, it, right. it doesn't seem like well, it is for the species because we have cancer now. We have all of these oh, things yeah. which demonstrably never existed. Well, the, the speed at which you do things and the effort that you put into things to maintain a certain level, to gain a certain level of celebrity or whatever else. I was just talking with someone yesterday about this. The people that really, really achieve notoriety and huge things, you'll often hear about how incredibly horrible their personal lives are. Mm. And it makes me think that if you are to put so much... Um, into becoming something this huge, even mm. if it's something like Mahatma Gandhi and, and Nelson Mandela or Elon Musk or mm -hmm. Steve Jobs, you know, sure. great achievements. You're putting a lot into this out here for the public and for the overall greater good mm -hmm. of all these people that you have very shallow relationships. Mm -hmm. Generally, for an individual to be able to do that, they're pulling from anything that they can give in a personal relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And so their personal lives often fall very, very short. Yeah. This is a very skeptical or uh, um, pessimistic look at, you know, kind of what I see that reality to be. But yeah. I think there's occasionally people that can give to the masses from a place of cherishing this. And I think it often comes more so in the form of things like authors and everything else where they're creating personally and just handing that over but not giving directly of themselves to that yeah to that large degree i don't know it's a it's a 
odd theory, but... <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think there is some, you know, the way I was describing that sort of Heideggerian concept of like what true art is, you know, of, of someone who can actually put themselves into a place where they're seeing this unbelievable levels of interconnectivity so that whatever this artistic sculptural or expression is that's in this one particular place, it has this relational effect here and here and with the people that are seeing mm. it and all these different things. So to be able to have that type of an awareness of a completeness of that artistic expression, I mean, I think it takes an immense divorce, a divorcedness from that type of simple being, which is the kind of, I think simple being is kind of the tepid bath being. It's kind of just chasing after the, you know, what's most comfortable. I'm just going to keep doing that. I'm going to move away from right. pain at all times. I'm going to move towards what's satisfying at all times. And that's yeah, just going to be my beingness. But if I've all of a sudden realized or, or believe that there's something that I'm putting up above that, you know, and for an artist that's, you know, clear, it's their art. It's whatever mm. their thing is that they're creating, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I often had the critique of my culture that I grew up in mm. that it didn't seem like art was really embraced mm -hmm. and I think that's just a natural reaction from having all the answers they had all the answers what on earth did they need to explore other than memorizing mm. and figuring out you know things within this cryptic book and they well it's an enforced tepid bath I mean that's one way of expressing yeah. what a codified religion is because it's it's basically saying we don't want you to go and encounter any um, any things that are uncomfortable um, here let me provide you with a full thing look this is all very comfortable like look that we're gonna give you this thing that you can substitute for any searching after truth right we're just gonna tell you that and then if you if you take it and you're ready to run with that then great the rest of this is all gonna fall in line out of that right but if you don't swallow the blue pill in this case, then, you know, you're in a world of trouble because you're going to be asking the question all the time. And I, I have a hard time knowing what to do with that completely because there have been so many good results from that approach. Mm. There's been a measurable amount of good results, yeah. but there's some very important key underlying things yeah. that are assumed that shouldn't be, right. that, that can't be. Yeah. And so I don't know how to completely break that apart and remain a whole person, yeah. you know? No, I mean, that's the, I mean, that Aristotelian bit is just that, yeah, repeat things over and over again, do those things. Yeah. Well, there's a benefit to that. I mean, there is, there can be, Yeah. but I mean, much like anything, I mean, you know, one of my favorite things used to always be, I mean, Socrates thing was, sorry, jumped a couple of things there. It was, um, all things in moderation, mm. but oh, yeah. the last clause of it is including moderation. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so, I mean, every once in a while, but, but to me, that brings us back to the balance point, because for me now, that's being hugely instructive to me with a lot of my old views. And I'm trying to go back and kind of do a little seeing if there was really balance at stake in all of these kind of struggles that I found that I was thinking to myself, well, was my real issue with that? Was my intense dislike for that? Was my intense frustration? Was it because there was incredible, you know, unbalance that was going on in that moment. Hmm. And a lot of the times I find that it was, you know, that time, times that I found were frustrating in my life, I was probably overdoing it, doing something or other. You know, I was probably trying to work real hard, which was beyond what was natural for me with a balance. I mean, I think it's, it's even true for artists that yes, it's true. It's important for you to go and to really immerse yourself in your art, but it's also true that to some extent there needs to be a balance factor as well, because if there's not, there may be nothing to come back to. 
Like you both have to be able to have your safe base and be able to jump over here and do this work. But mm -hmm. sorry, but if you're not handling the base, this all may crumble. Right. So, you know, there's part of that. I mean, if, for you, you know, obviously part of your struggle to be able to go and confront the things that you're trying to confront, to be able to, to go into that space, to find answers, to demand answers, you know, to, to push in there. Um, but at the same time, you're also trying to maintain balance over here with the family and everything else. I mean, yeah, I mean, so, so for me, it's, you know, it, if your religion, if, if it's the steps of the religion that are um, causing you such a, a feeling and a sense of, of something unbalanced, I mean, that's not to be ignored. Yeah. You know, and obviously yeah. you haven't. I'm, I'm not trying to, um, you know, evaluate for you or anything else. But I'm trying to, you know, consider this hypothetical, right, if I were in the same situation. Because I've gone through, you know, it in my own way. Um, but, you know, it's also important to, um, to be able to, you know, allow unbalance for short, short periods of time. To be able to allow the travel experience that I was talking about yeah. earlier. Because yeah. that in its very nature is lacking balance yeah well i'm i am essentially uh mind traveling yeah. and worldview traveling right now yeah. and and working at uh uh you know going out there experiencing and returning home and seeing what that looks like you know so. i would say that the thought experiments that i've that i've been able to do with the balance thing especially i went to a couple of retreats with that group last year which was very um very alien and foreign to me this um acupuncture group which is steeped in taoism yeah and and to some degree sufism um uh you know and i can't say that you know i've been converted to that worldview or anything else but i love hearing um the truths that the reverberating truths that are within those groups hmm really enjoy that and, and this one in particular there was a real you know discussion of of ancient concepts of femininity and masculinity i mean that was mentioned and sort of brought back to the surface a little bit i think by the um was it the da vinci code discussed that a little bit and it became right. a little bit of a topic again right. it was interesting and obviously you know since the advent of, of feminism really coming up as a popular movement that's you know sort of been on the surface for a, a a good amount of time in our culture as well is is there a difference between role and sex is there a difference between you know the balance of is there a true nature of masculinity and femininity you know what about homosexuality what does that bring to these types of concepts you know there's there's a lot there there, there are a lot of interesting things there but you know then the question becomes is there is there really a root um impetus or will like a, is there a feminine will that's always being exerted? Is there a masculine will that's always being exerted? Hmm. Do they have core essences? I, th I think there, there are definitely uh, traits that we naturally categorize hmm. as feminine and, and masculine, uh, but those are within a bell curve. And as you, you know, there's outliers mm -hmm. and you have to allow for outliers unless you wanna live in an extremely controlled society that says, uh, we see that you're an outlier, but you are not allowed to do X, Y, and Z mm. because you're of this biological subset. So you can only do that. Sure. You know? Yeah. So. I think the language of that was very harsh for a while, you know, growing up in the, I think the, the 19, 
whatever 20s to 60s america or something like that mm -hmm. it was a nightmare i mean if you were a woman you had like two options you know it was like marry or become a secretary or a nurse yeah. or something it was like yeah. your options were completely limited um but i mean i think about it in terms of like say a constant a concept like nurturing right i mean is there uh, is nurturing exclusively a feminine uh, you know a feminine impulse? not exclusively but yeah. it's going to be more common we mm -hmm. have found in you know women sure. and that is neither right nor wrong but just a fact that it's more commonly there mm -hmm. now that in no way means that if you're a woman you have to make it your sole venture to nurture Absolutely. Not at all. Yeah. And we cannot insist on equality of outcome. There yeah. just has to be equality of opportunity. Mm. And if if we can have it, in, which interestingly in the Scandinavian countries where they've worked towards all equality uh, far longer than we have and to a larger degree, the outcome has become far more segregated mm. where people have the choice and do not have the pressure mm -hmm. to of the society telling them kick off those chains woman and be a ceo that's what you should be doing right right, right. where it's just kind of like you can absolutely do whatever you want yeah, you can do that if you want to yeah you can do that not every woman now has to become it. a ceo yeah. i mean it's up to you <laughs> and in those countries they're far more segregated into the stereotypical biological roles by choice because yeah. they don't have the pressure of kicking off the, right. the oppression yeah. and they don't have the, you know, the pressure from society to make sure you achieve outside of your stereotypical norm, yeah. you know? And no, I agree with you. It's almost like an enforced, um, an enforced rebellion or something yeah. like that. Right. Yeah. Which it's I like, understand. Oh, you're not rebelling. Like, no, it, you owe it to all the rest yeah, of us to, to rebel. I mean, right it's, now. it's like a gay pride parade. There'd be no need for a gay pride parade mm -hmm. if societies had always been accepting and loving and nurturing of people that are different. Yeah. But they've had enough of it. They've had enough of the throwing off of high buildings and yeah. being stoned and being denied and yeah. having to be closeted. And you, yeah. and you know what they say? We're, we're going to have a freaking parade and you're right. going to like it. Yeah. And that's fine. I right. get that. Yeah, yeah, me I too. get the need for that. I get the need for people to emotionally be able to express themselves yeah. having, after having to have been oppressed for so long. But I think if I were also a part of that community, my, and this is obviously, you know, what they call me cisgendered, you know, hetero male or whatever right. these days that, um, I mean, I would also, for me, I would want to feel that if I didn't want to go to every pride parade every single year, if I didn't feel it that year or whatever, I had something else going on, again, I wouldn't want to have to kind of be, for, I wouldn't want the enforced rebellion upon me sure. by my peer group. It's, it's just part of a societal change, I think, in that we have come through a time where women have been oppressed for so long. Yeah. So it's kind of like if you're not taking up the banner, yeah. you're questionable and you might not be. So I don't get to keep my card, my pride card. Yeah. Because I mean, that's the thing. Right? Well, that's been used jokingly before. Do I yep. get to keep my feminism card? Right. Do I get to keep my independent woman card? Do I get to keep my, you know, right. whatever? So there... I just kind of accept, well, first of all, I'm pretty antisocial to begin with, so mm. no one's going to miss me at any function. Right, right, me too. But, you know, it's, it's, I see it as just a natural process of the group, the overall society needs to get behind this and condemn, 
you know, these type of behaviors. And I understand, and I understand why the far left has gone too far. And I think there'll be a pendulum swing and there'll be people that are mad about the pendulum swing. But I think, again, the, the having of these conversations where religions have gone too far, right. where social movements have gone too yeah. far, and where... Yeah, out of balance. I mean, I think this balance yeah, thing is such balance. a really powerful concept. That but I think the, the key thing is the, the freedom of speech mm-hmm. and moderation, yeah. which means that yeah. people like you and I have conversations with people that disagree with us, mm-hmm. and we have those conversations openly. Because and respectfully. To take, yeah. yeah, and respectfully, because anyone that's got uh, something that you think is a bad idea, yeah. the best way to deal with that is to explore it and to openly uh, discuss it and see if it stands up rather than just bury it. Yeah. Because if you bury it, it's going to fester. Yeah. It's going to go underground. It's going to become even worse. Yeah, so. no, agreed. No, I, th- I mean, the, I, I asked the nurturing question and I, I don't mean it. I, d- I didn't mean it to be disingenuously asked because I do believe that while you're right, I think historically we've left the job of nurturing to women. I mean, certainly mm. throughout much of history, I think that, a man and a woman, both masculine and feminine, actually both partake in nurturing, but they partake in a different way. And similarly, oh, yeah. I think an, another even may, maybe clear example is, is think about the concept of sheltering. The way in which women will shelter or the, the feminine urge to shelter is something different than the male urge to shelter. But hmm. the feminine and the masculine actually come together very closely and tightly with this. It's, it's one of their major overlap points is that they both you know, hugely desire shelter and the creation of shelter right. and a, a comingness together in order to achieve that in a very interesting way. I mean, these are the types of like the Einstein's kind of thought experiment things that I mean by analogy that taking balance, taking concepts like masculine and feminine, taking concepts like, and again, divorcing those concepts from a man and a woman, but just thinking about how historically they've been represented because there certainly is toxic masculinity. I mean, oh, there's yeah. certainly, but there's certainly also toxic femininity. Yeah, yeah. They're both. There, there's racist white people, there's racist black people. Absolutely. We get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I don't mean these at all to be exclusive to men or women when I'm saying this, but I think that there's something that stands differently, or stands apart, you know, these concepts of, of a masculine urge versus a feminine urge, because there's something mm. that, um, they're grossly out of balance, you know, and, and that's, one of the reasons why I think we're in, we're uh, as Americans we're having such a a struggle right now with so many of these concepts, or the West in general probably, but I think we're really making it a major crisis right now. Um, and, you know, and to some degree I think it should be because I think we've been some of the most out of balance yep. in terms of you know that enforced like women are only going to be this, men are only going to be this. Right. There's, yeah. So. Well, we come from that very. Uh uh, temperance movement background it's where all the new religion you know the u.s has been the birthplace of mormonism mm-hmm. jehovah's Witness, all those but mm-hmm. i just looked at my watch yeah and, yeah we're probably and we are uh, over, overdue but which means uh, this is a really great conversation mm-hmm. i really am happy that you came in uh very uh invigorating a lot of aha moments for me super appreciate it very glad that uh I had this idea to just talk to whoever from Craigslist, but yeah. super appreciate. You yeah, I saw your in. eyes widen quite a few times, so I was like, "Cool," because I something's getting through I, again. <laughs> well, no, it's just because when I saw that you were struggling, you know, with this type of a struggle, and uh, knowing that I've had this before, 
and that I've encountered many things along the way that have been helpful to me at various points that, you know, almost like um, gravity centers of sorts that, that I was able to kind of take a short orbit around for a little bit, you know, uh, caused a good effect for me, and then I was able to kind of bounce from there to another one. Right. Um, that maybe I could offer a couple of those uh, interesting thoughts that I found helpful and maybe they're helpful to you, or maybe they're not a part of your particular journey struggle. I don't know. No, the um, just just walking through uh, the the process and having more and more of these conversations is is just a really good thing for me personally, and a, and I think a really good thing for other people to witness. So, yeah. thank you so much cool. for coming in. Yeah, well, and, thanks for uh, hosting us. It's a fun conversation. All Appreciate right, it. awesome. Thanks, Tim. Take it easy, Trent.